thank you all for coming this morning. Good morning. Um, I'm glad we didn't have the weather that was uh, perhaps predicted, so really appreciate it. I really appreciate you all coming. I'm delighted to welcome you all here today for our second annual Stevenson Ocean Security Conference. Um, this is uh, really a delight to have you all here, uh, and doubly true because I know there really is so much going on in the world today that demands our attention in a very legitimate way. Legitimate way. Um, so I'm really glad that you all have decided to spare some of your attention for, for us here today to think about oceans, to think about sustainability, and to think about some of the challenges uh, of how these things intersect with national security. That's really our mission here at OSOS, is to think about how ocean sustainability and national security issues intersect. And in doing so, we seek to develop and promote solutions that support sustainable development, coalition building, and the need for American leadership. All of these are critical because the erosion of global marine ecosystems from a combination of unsustainable practices and climate change is now presenting us with a systemic risk to stability and security around the globe. Today we're going to take a deep dive into two different ways this risk propagates and manifests. Our first panel will examine the links between infrastructure investment, fisheries, and sovereignty along China's so-called Maritime Silk Road. Our second panel will focus on what we now recognize are two sides of the same devilish coin, illegal fishing and human rights violations in our global seafood supply chain. On the surface, these issues may seem to be miles apart, but they're actually linked quite closely in a very fundamental way by their enabling conditions and in their ultimate outcomes. I am speaking of the opacity of the high seas, what Ian Urbina has called the lawless ocean, and of the plundering that can occur behind that veil. A friend of mine has remarked that after mitigating climate change, the single most important thing we can do for ocean sustainability is to get China to improve its global fishing practices. This is not because they're the only bad actor, far from it, but because they are far and away the dominant one, and because their practices encourage a form of fisheries diplomacy that harms the ability of host countries to effectively manage their own resources. On human rights, unfortunately, there is a significant market pressure in some parts of the global seafood supply chain to use forced labor. A system of bad subsidies, distorted markets, encourages unsustainable and immoral behavior. In both these cases, we see clear links between sovereignty, security, and sustainability. So I'm really looking forward to hearing from our panelists on these issues and how these things intersect in different parts of the world. I'm also excited that we have Congressman Jared Huffman here to provide us with an opening keynote discussion. And later, we're going to have Vice Admiral Dan Abel, the Deputy Commandant of the Coast Guard, to help us close out our morning's events. So I'd like to now uh, thank and introduce Phil Stevenson. He's the founder of the Stevenson Foundation and our lead sponsor. We would, of course, not be here if it weren't for his vision. Phil. Thank you, Witt, and uh, thank all of you for taking time to come today. Uh, as Witt said, the purpose of this project is to find places where the U.S. national security interest intersects with the global environmental interest. Over the years, I've come to think that these two groups either ignore each other or are sometimes opposed. Think about it. Your average military person leans and votes right. Your average environmental person leans and votes left. Averages, I'm speaking of. Stereotypes, perhaps. If these communities are to come together and pull at a common oar to reach common goals, perhaps for different reasons, then we need to initiate discussions like the one Witt talked about today. I hope that all of you will participate in these discussions in a frank manner and raise questions about how these changes can be implemented. 
Now it's my pleasure to introduce Congressman Jared Huffman. The Congressman is a fourth term Congressman, a Democrat from California, whose second district stretches from San Francisco up to the Oregon border. Congressman Huffman chairs the Committee on Natural Resources Subcommittee on Oceans, Water, and Wildlife, and he's a member of and leader in caucuses such as the International Conservation Caucus, Ocean Caucus, and National Marine Sanctuaries Foundation Caucus. Previously, Congressman Huffman served for seven or eight years in the State Assembly of California and was a senior lawyer at the National Resources Defense Council. He's a graduate of Santa Barbara, the University of California at Santa Barbara, and Boston College Law School. So please welcome the Congressman and show him your appreciation. Thank you all. All right, well thank you for that introduction. And thanks, Whit, thanks to both CSIS and uh, the Stevenson Foundation for convening such an important conversation as your morning keynote. Uh, my job is to kind of get things started, make sure everybody's awake and alert and engaged. I could, I could do that, I guess, by leading us in some yoga or Tai Chi, um, but I thought I'd do something even more invigorating, uh, tell you a little bit about the great congressional district that I represent. Um, <laughs> I hope you will indulge that. Members of Congress do this. They brag about their district, and uh, sometimes they believe the things that they say. And in my case, how could you not? Uh, I represent a third of the California coast, from the Golden Gate Bridge to the Oregon border. And uh, it is a spectacular and amazing place. Um, the iconic ocean views, the marine fisheries that support working waterfronts from Sausalito to Crescent City. Uh, I've got amazing pristine rivers where you'll find me fishing for salmon and steelhead every chance I get. Uh, incredible landscapes that include uh, old growth redwood forests, oak woodlands, uh, some of the finest wine country in the entire world. And if you're into this sort of thing, I'm told that the best cannabis in America is grown right in the heart of my district. So. <laughs> Uh, probably a subject for a different conference. Um, they won't let me spend my entire time uh, in this speech to bragging about my district, uh, but I do want you to know that if you need more information on where to have your next vacation, we've got a little bit of a ringer here uh, at uh, CSIS. The vice president of the organization uh, for Congressional and Governmental Affairs is Lewis Lauder. He is a native of Marin County, and if you want some information on where to take your next vacation, talk to Lewis. Or if you need to be hooked up with that cannabis, uh, talk to Lewis. Yeah, yeah. All right, getting back to uh, our regular scheduled program. I am here today in my role as the chair of the Subcommittee on Water, Oceans, and Wildlife. And I want to talk to you about an issue that we've been investigating uh, in my subcommittee that I think has significant global implications for security of our country. Uh, and that issue is illegal unreported and unregulated fishing. Illegal, unreported, unregulated. We refer to this as IUU fishing. So when I use that term IUU fishing, that's what I'm talking about uh, this morning. Might surprise some of you 
to learn that my little environmental subcommittee on water, oceans, and wildlife has jurisdiction over several topics, I believe, with implications for international and security issues. I see those implications in each part of my subcommittee's title, starting with water. I have worked on sustainable water policy since I started my political journey as a member of my local water board in Marin County back in the 1990s. I've continued that work on water as a senior attorney at the Natural Resources Defense Council, as a state legislator where I uh, chaired the water committee in Sacramento, uh, and of course uh, my whole time here in the United States Congress. And um, in California, as with so many other things, we are a national leader, or at least an early indicator of the water challenges that many parts of the world are going to experience as a result of climate change. You wouldn't know it now from our good snowpack so far this year, uh, but it's just two years since we emerged from the worst drought of record, a seven-year event that tested the resilience of our ecosystems, our water infrastructure, and our legal institutions, as well as our economy. And the water scarcity that California has grappled with over the last decade, as difficult as that was, actually pales in uh, comparison to what we have seen around the world, from Cape Town to Australia, Jakarta, the uh, water-scarce regions of the Arabian Peninsula. Drought is driving instability and economic disruption all over the world. And climate models, of course, have been predicting this. They've been telling us for some time that droughts are going to be more frequent and more severe. We know now that that's true because it is already happening. And our security, I believe, depends on our ability to prepare and adapt. That brings us to uh, the other part of my subcommittee's jurisdiction, oceans and wildlife. And what we've learned at hearings that I've held over the last year, including one on the extinction crisis, is that the global loss of biodiversity uh, is very much a problem for human societies around the world. So the extinction crisis, I hope you will agree, uh, is also a human crisis, if you think about it. More than 75% of our global food crops rely on animal pollination. An estimated 4 billion people rely primarily on natural medicines. Illegal wildlife trafficking and poaching correlate with corruption and poor governance, and in many cases with terrorism. The intersection of oceans and wildlife, of course, is at the heart of my subcommittee's jurisdiction, and that's what leads me to the very serious and growing problem of IUU fishing that I want to discuss in detail with you. Uh, oceans are truly the last frontier, the wild, wild west of our planet. The remoteness of the open ocean, combined with limited data, difficulty with monitoring fishing vessels, lack of law enforcement capabilities, all of this creates a perfect storm for illegal activity. The pirates had this figured out a long time ago. Uh, last year, my subcommittee held a hearing focused on a form of modern-day piracy, you might say, IUU fishing. And uh, we heard about this systematic evasion of global fishing laws. Uh, the things we heard, I believe, are shocking. As with any international criminal enterprise, it's really hard to say exactly how much IUU fishing is taking place, but experts estimate that it ranges from 15 to 30 percent of the annual global seafood catch that it generates between 10 and 23 and a half billion dollars per year. 
At our hearing, we heard from an amazing New York Times investigative reporter named Ian Urbina. And uh, this gentleman risked his life to go undercover and tell this story. He testified not only about the environmental damage from IUU fishing, but about appalling human rights abuses that often accompany these criminal enterprises, and how in many parts of the world the problem is far worse than we thought. His powerful testimony underscored the need to act and to act quickly, and I want to share just a portion of what he said. He, he is talking about uh, the world's oceans here, and I quote, the bottom line is that this realm, which happens to cover two-thirds of the globe, is home to an assortment of extra-legal actors. They range from traffickers and smugglers to pirates and mercenaries, wreck thieves and repo men, vigilante conservationists and elusive poachers, sea-bound abortion providers, clandestine oil dumpers, shackled slaves and cast adrift stowaways. Many of these actors flourish in the absence of governance. And importantly, many of them, many of the urgent problems that they are either countering or creating involve an interplay between human rights and environmental abuses. So solutions, of course, to this problem are not simple, and that's why I'm glad that an organization like CSIS is here to help bridge the gaps. Uh, one thing seems clear, it's going to take uh, a lot of multi multilateral coordination and cooperation among countries big and small. And from what I've been able to see so far, I think there's reason for both alarm and a little bit of hope uh, in that regard. Just last month, I joined Speaker Pelosi as part of a bicameral delegation to Madrid, Spain for the Conference of Parties, referred to as COP25. This is the climate conference. At the, as the, uh, at the request of our host countries, the host was originally going to be Chile. Uh, it had to be moved to Spain. So think of Chile and Spain as uh, joint hosts of COP25. But at their request, uh, this was the blue COP, the first climate conference ever to focus on how oceans play a central role in our climate problem. Uh, and it turns out oceans actually have been absorbing a lot of the global warming and the increased atmospheric CO2 that the past century of fossil fuel burning has inflicted on the planet. As a result, we're seeing devastating phenomena like coral bleaching, toxic algal blooms, deoxygenation, fishery crashes, and ocean acidification that is already making it hard to sustain shellfish uh, in some areas. It, and that's in addition to the obvious threats of rising sea levels and what that poses to coastal communities. There's also a new focus, though, on how our ocean's energy can be harnessed to replace some of that fossil fuel burning, and how natural systems like coastal mangroves, eelgrass, and salt marshes can sequester huge amounts of carbon to fight the problem, and how restoring these habitats uh, is actually uh, a double win. It helps the climate and it helps keep coastal uh, communities safer and more resilient. I was impressed with how many countries are connecting the dots, realizing that the health of our oceans and climate are inextricably linked and that confronting this crisis is a matter of national and global security. But it's also hard not to be discouraged by the fact that the world's most essential player on all of these issues, the United States, under the Trump administration, is not only missing in action, uh, but is actively working to undermine global collaboration and block progress in confronting these problems. In Madrid, even though the United States nominally did have a small State Department negotiating 
delegation because technically we don't leave the Paris Agreement until the end of this year. Uh, it was nevertheless, um, the backward leadership of the United States right now was nevertheless palpable. Uh, everybody was talking about it, every country. It caused other leading countries to hold back on their climate commitments. It was the primary reason why COP25, at a time when the world's scientists are telling us we're running out of time to take dramatic action to prevent the worst impacts of the climate crisis, and nevertheless, this conference was unable to produce anything beyond a very weak and disappointing agreement that doesn't take us very much closer to the solutions we know we need. The growing international consensus about how our oceans fit into this problem was one of the few bright spots I saw in Madrid. And some world leaders seem positively woke on this subject. Uh, a great example is King Philippe VI of Spain. And when we met with him privately, uh, he specifically brought up ocean security and the need to do more to combat IUU fishing. He was very knowledgeable on the subject. It seemed to be a, a personal passion of his. And it's great to hear that coming from Spain, which, of course, has uh, one of the largest, uh, the largest fishing fleet capacity in Europe. It represents more than a fifth of the U European fishing capacity by gross tonnage. And uh, more importantly, Spain used to be one of the biggest offenders when it came to IUU fishing. They have taken action, and they are now a leader in the European Union, and that is a model that I think we should build on. Confronting IUU fishing is one of the keys to improving fishery management in every country. And the reason is uh, because IU, IUU fishing reduces the reliability of our stock assessments, which are the essential tool for setting quotas and managing the health of fisheries. It threatens the survival of endangered and threatened species that are often caught as bycatch. It compromises the functioning of healthy ecosystems and creates unfair advantages for lawbreakers who undercut countries and fishing communities that play by the rules. And by undermining good sustainable fishery management in all these ways, it threatens global economies and food security. So IUU fishing makes it harder to ensure that fish stocks aren't fished beyond the point of recovery. And because it is so often coupled with other problems like human trafficking and slavery and other human rights abuses, we know that confronting this problem is not just about protecting fish, it is about human safety and human rights as well. I think we owe this fight to our domestic American fishermen. They fish in some of the best managed fisheries in the world, yet they compete in markets with imported fish that are difficult to trace poorly labeled, and too often are caught using forced labor and illegal fishing practices. The human trafficking side of this story in particular needs more attention because we have a growing body of evidence that it is pervasive. Forced labor and the associated crime of trafficking persists in the global seafood supply chain despite increased international scrutiny and several high-profile media exposés. If you talk to the NGOs that are working on this issue, they continue to report shockingly high levels of labor exploitation associated with IUU fishing. There are tens of thousands of men and women from Thailand, Burma, Laos, and elsewhere that have been kidnapped, forced to work aboard commercial fishing vessels, often toiling without pay for months, years, or even decades and in many cases without ever setting foot on land during that time. Some of them just disappear or are murdered at sea. 
and many of the vessels that are involved in these illegal operations escape government notice because on the high seas, it truly is the Wild West. They can offload their catch onto larger ships. They can come into port seemingly with their papers in order, and it becomes very difficult for government officials to trace the supply chain. Don't think that we're immune here in the United States to this problem. Uh, we, of course, assume a high level of accuracy and integrity in our food labeling. And yet, here in America, most consumers really have no idea what kind of seafood they really bought, who really caught it, where it really came from. And that's especially troubling since the most popular catches, talking about things like tuna and shrimp, are among the most reliant on imports to meet demand. And a lot of those imports come from countries with serious IUU fishing problems. So here's one of the expert witnesses at uh, our hearing last year, uh, a woman by the name of Ami Zagiv of Humanity United, and I want to quote what she told us at the hearing. So I'm reading from her testimony. A large portion of workers in, in fishing are migrants. In Thailand, that number is estimated to be as high as 82% of, this, of the 172,430 fishermen crewing their boats. These workers, primarily from Myanmar, Cambodia and Laos often migrate informally and thus fall outside of the protection of the law. The unfortunate fact is that many workers who migrate for work find themselves in trouble even before they have left home. It's not uncommon for unethical middlemen to charge workers exploitative fees in order to obtain a job, passing that debt along to the employer so that the workers arrive at the job already in a state of heavy debt bondage. One such job seeker, a man named Soe, left his village in Myanmar, hopeful of finding gainful employment in Thailand in order to help his family back home. Tricked and taken far out to sea, Soe was trapped, suffering from seasickness and backbreaking labor. He and his friends were forced to work on the boat for two years and eight days. During those years, Soe wasn't paid, and he wasn't allowed to go ashore. This is one man's story, but it's important to note that he is one of likely millions like him on fishing vessels out there on our seas, catching our food, end quote. So as challenging as it's going to be to confront the scourge of IUU fishing, climate change is going to make it even harder because it's going to lead to uh, shifting fishery stocks. Sometimes fishery crashes due to changing ocean conditions, and this will mean more international disputes. Here in the United States, some of the most economically important fish are already moving out of their current geographic habitats to cooler waters. As the oceans heat up, fish stocks move further and further toward the poles. Coastal communities that have depended on them for generations are engaging in increased fights over who has the rights and the ownership over these various shifting fish stocks. These conflicts are escalating. We see them today in many regions of the United States. And as these fights begin to cross international borders, sometimes involving countries who are our adversaries, uh, it's going to get even more complicated. So there's obvious national security implications here. Uh, and these implications are being felt across the globe. I mentioned earlier that the King of Spain brought up IUU fishing in his remarks with us in Madrid. One of the reasons that I think Spain's success uh, is so exciting is that the European Union has come up with a pretty good idea for tackling this IUU problem. It's a carting system that identifies countries who are pursuing or at least allowing IUU practices 
to, uh, to take place. And it's a little bit like managing bad behavior in a soccer game. The referee identifies the, uh, the countries who have poor IUU fishing protections. They are issued a yellow card. And uh, if the yellow-carded countries improve their regulation to match EU standards, they are given a green card and delisted. If they don't fix the problem, uh, there are consequences. They get a red card, and that gets their attention because it means that they are banned from EU markets. Now, here in the United States, our system for addressing IUU fishing is far less robust. In the United States, NOAA is charged with identifying countries engaged in IUU fishing and working with those countries to improve their practices. NOAA then certifies whether the countries have adequately addressed the problem and reports these findings to Congress every two years. The problem is the system just is not working, in part because NOAA has a pattern of warning IUU offenders and then giving them positive certificates certifications for making promises uh, to change, and then restarting this cycle of warning and recertification over and over without ever imposing consequences for repeat offenders. Not only is this system ineffective at discouraging violations, but NOAA is stubbornly using a very narrow definition of IUU fishing, far more narrow than the internationally agreed upon definition used by food and agriculture organization, the, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN, uh, their definition includes forced labor, human trafficking, and money laundering, for example, NOAA's definition does not. Uh, we know all those problems, by the way, are associated with IUU fishing, so I think we should use the broader uh, definition that the EU does, and uh, I believe it's time for NOAA to get its head out of the sand and join our European allies at the forefront of IUU reform and ocean security practices. Congress is starting to nudge NOAA in that direction. This year's National Defense Authorization Act included some important IUU fishing provisions, which are a good start, but there is a lot more work to do. Specifically, uh, the NDAA included the Maritime Safe Act, which supports a whole-of-government approach to address IUU fishing by improving collaboration and coordination among agencies. It establishes a standing federal interagency working group. This builds on a presidential task force on IUU fishing and seafood fraud that President Obama had previously created but was allowed uh, to go defunct under the Trump administration. So we're glad to have that back. Uh, the new law also directs federal agencies to improve information sharing and improve seafood import traceability. Uh, in addition to improving agency coordination and strengthening NOAA's work in this area, I think we should use one of our strongest tools for leveraging good practices by other countries. I'm talking about our trade agreements to, uh, to deter IUU fishing. Looking at the EU model, the United States could impose stronger and more meaningful sanctions against negatively certified countries, such as limiting imports from entire countries engaged in IUU fishing and not just individual vessels. That's part of the, the problem with our current approach. We often talk about our trade agreements as important tools to level the playing field for American workers and businesses. That principle should apply to more than just auto manufacturers, agriculture, and high-tech companies. Importing illegally caught seafood doesn't just hurt the environment, it hurts American fisheries and businesses who compete in the marketplace against dirty, unsafe, and illegal products. I am encouraged that two of my colleagues who serve on the Ways and Means Committee, Chairman Richie Neal and Trade Subcommittee Chair Earl Blumenauer, 
recently uh, wrote a letter to U.S. trade officials seeking review of the prevalence of IUU products in the U.S. import market and also an analysis of how IUU fishing is impacting the U.S. fishing industry. That's another positive step forward. This will be uh, important information that we get back from these efforts as Congress continues to look at ways to strengthen not just our fisheries management, but how we use markets to ensure that the seafood we import in America and consume in America is what it purports to be and is not the result of illegal fishing or human trafficking. I'm currently leading a nationwide listening tour to gather feedback on how we can improve the Magnuson-Stevens Act. This is the venerable old federal law that governs marine fisheries management in U.S. federal waters. And overall, I can tell you that the feedback I'm getting um, is that the Magnuson Act is, is working pretty well, but there's room for improvement and modernization. The uh, problem of shifting stocks due to climate change, for example, which I discussed a moment ago, that was not even part of the conversation in prior Magnuson authorizations, but it is a growing reality in many regions and we need to address it. Many conservation, and conser uh, conservation groups and conservation-minded fishers are also advocating for ecosystem-based fishery management, EBFM, which they believe is a better way to not just uh, establish sustainable fishing regulations, but to better manage the entire ocean ecosystem. And there's some new technologies that we need to look seriously at. They can help us manage fisheries through electronic monitoring, for example, uh, reducing costs and regulatory burdens to uh, our fishermen and fisherwomen. Some of these technologies have obvious implications for helping us reduce IUU fishing as well. Uh, so I hope all of this is part of a robust conversation going forward with a goal of making our oceans as secure as possible and bringing the United States into a position of leadership on ocean security. And I want to thank all of you and this conference for focusing on this important issue. I look forward to the discussion that I think is going to now follow. So thank you very much. Do you have a few minutes for questions? Yeah. Thank you, Congressman, for those excellent remarks. I think that was a really tremendous overview of sort of the, the diversity of, of issues that, that we face uh, when trying to deal with, uh, with IEU. Um, I believe in uh, your hearing that you referenced in November, you talked about how there's this real multifaceted nature of the challenge affecting not only ocean health, but human well-being, as you referenced. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the challenges that we face here in the U.S. government in dealing with these things is that our agencies tend to be really restricted in their mandates. They tend to think in stovepipes. Yeah. NOAA is a wonderful agency. They've got great mandates, but they think about fish. Yeah. But what we are really learning, as you pointed out, is that this issue is, is really broader than that, that we have a really diverse array of issue sets that come together on, around this, this, uh, this problem. So how do we get an agency like NOAA to, to think beyond those simple yeah. mandates or perhaps more importantly, get other agencies to come work with NOAA on these challenges? Uh, it is, I think, one of the most important questions, and, and that's why I think uh, the revival of this interagency working group is a good step forward so we can address some of that siloing problem that you mentioned. But I, I think there's going to have to be political pressure uh, as well. Uh, no matter how much agencies talk to each other, um, if, if there's not a, a pretty clear policy direction, either from the administration or Congress or ideally both, uh, it's going to be hard to get them to take the stronger actions that I think are necessary, um, whether that is using the existing tools that they have to do more about IUU fishing, 
uh, or uh, helping us build better trade agreements that, that uh, take us further on this issue. Right. There's, there should be a real opportunity for those trade agreements, I, I think, in building in these kind of priorities. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'll add one more question, then maybe we'll, we'll turn to the audience okay. for a couple here. Um, so you mentioned uh, our own seafood import monitoring program, which is mm -hmm. our uh, uh, traceability program here in the States. And it does differ uh, quite a bit in how it's implemented uh, uh, versus the European system. Um, but it does have some, some advantages, I think. Um, are there specific things that you're looking at uh, in the coming year, uh, maybe uh, looking towards a new administration in terms of um, adding in components or, or yeah. how we might improve that program? Well, if we want to believe that the existing seafood import monitoring program is an adequate tool to address this problem, uh, at some point we are going to need to see some consequences for the repeat offenders. Uh, and so if, if NOAA wants to avoid, uh, you know, new, new laws and new actions of Congress that push it further into this space, they should step up and, for example, address the repeat offenses from Mexico uh, and other countries that uh, are just on this treadmill of uh, getting warned and then getting a clean certification and starting over and over again without ever having any consequences and, and having full access to our markets the whole time. Another quick point on that before we turn to the audience. I, I think the, um, you mentioned expanding the definition of IEU. I think that yeah. could go a long way to, to improving that as well. Mm -hmm. um, okay, great. So I think uh, maybe we'll turn. We have an opportunity for, I would say, just a few questions. Um, are there folks in the audience who'd like to ask the congressman a question? Do we have mics? Yeah. Let's go over here first, and then we'll go over there. Uh, Richard Coleman, retired from Customs and Border Protection. Uh, marine mammal protection, yeah. Japan whaling. Is there any prospect of a pressure on the Japanese to curtail their whaling operations? I think there's some international pressures uh, that, that will continue to apply, but you're not seeing any significant pressure, at least I'm not seeing any from this administration uh, on Japan. And it's not just Japan. I mean, I mentioned Mexico a moment ago. The, the vaquita is probably going to be the next, uh, it's, a, it's a little dolphin, uh, about yay big. Uh, it's going to be the next marine mammal to go extinct because Mexico allows the illegal trafficking of a certain fish bladder uh, in a species of fish that the vaquita feeds on in, in the Sea of Cortez. And uh, we have been completely ineffective in getting them to step up and, and save this marine mammal. So I'm glad you asked the question. I don't have a lot of good news that I'm aware of. Uh, on, on progress, dealing with it. I had David Helbarg, I'm author, executive director of Blue Frontier. Um, I'm talking to commercial fishermen. I'm just curious in your listening sessions um, how willing both commercial fishermen and the industry are to kind of reboot Magnus and Stevens to incorporate issues of climate in terms of fish migration and, yeah. and loss of abundance decline. Well, it's, it's been interesting. I'm about halfway through this listening tour. I'm trying to go to every region of the country that has a fisheries management council. And so far, we've done a couple of meetings in California. We've been to the Mid-Atlantic in Baltimore. Uh, we have been to Seattle. Uh, and, and we've got some more uh, stops uh, to get to. I am hearing everywhere I go an acknowledgment that climate change is already having impacts on fisheries management and that we're going to have to address it. How we address it uh, is not yet uh, the subject of consensus. There's a huge amount of nervousness about making any changes to Magnuson because, you know, for, for whatever 
shortcomings it may have, it, it is something that the entire community has gotten pretty comfortable with over several decades. So we're going to obviously have to be very careful uh, about how we do it, but I, I don't see any way to avoid the issue of shifting stocks and, and other implications of climate change in, in marine fisheries management. Let's take two more, but maybe we'll combine them because uh, I think we want to be respectful of the congressman's time. Um, so maybe we'll take the back here and then in the middle. Thank you, Congressman. My name is John Brandon. I'm with the Asia Foundation here in Washington. Uh, you gave an excellent overview of the problem of IUU fishing. Um, but one subject that you didn't touch on, which I think still is important, is the issue of marine debris. Mm -hmm. uh, not just around the world, and uh, particularly plastics and microplastics, yeah. and how they're infiltrating uh, our diets in, uh, in seafood. And I was wondering if uh, you think the United States could work with Asian countries and other countries throughout the world to try to help mitigate that problem, because it really is yeah. a food security issue and a health issue. Yeah, thank you for that question. And uh, I, I share your concern about plastics and marine debris. In fact, uh, in my subcommittee, we're going to be tackling uh, these issues uh, early in this new year. So uh, stay tuned for some hearings and hopefully uh, spotlighting, you know, if not only the problems, hopefully some solutions uh, to this serious problem. Now, I am um, of the view, because, you know, when, when I say there is a climate crisis, I really mean it. Uh, and I think if you believe there's a climate crisis, you have to be willing to confront the elephant in the room which is our, our desperate need to break from fossil fuels. Uh, plastics are very much a fossil fuel problem. It's a byproduct of, of fossil fuel uh, synthesis, and uh, there's increasing evidence that fossil fuel companies get this, and they are kind of doubling down on plastics as the future, the next frontier of how they're going to continue to make money. Um, with all of the problems that that's caused in our marine environment, we've got to make sure we don't let that happen. Um, first, Congressman, uh, congratulations on the, your leadership on the Defense Authorization Act. Um, that was the first time Congress has ever done anything like that on IUU, and it's really remarkable. Um, the question I would have for you is, um, one could argue that the pollution control laws in this country have been remarkably effective for enforcement and compliance, in large part because of the right to know elements. And essentially, whoever is polluting is very transparent to everybody in the, in the world. To what extent do you think there would be an appetite to bring these concepts of right to know and transparency to the fishing sector, both yeah. domestically and internationally? I, I think you're correct about that. And uh, there's a huge disconnect between the high standards that we have for other things that we consume and, and purchase in this country and our seafood, which is, is kind of a black box uh, today. So. Um, it, it is uh, something that we're going to have to continue to work on. Uh, one example of this, and uh, you know, please don't call me anti-science because I'm not anti-GMO categorically, but I do think when it comes to something like uh, GMO salmon, consumers want to know, uh, are they purchasing salmon or are they purchasing some you know, hybrid you know, grown in a laboratory in some place that might have environmental problems, that might threaten wild fish stocks, and so I have long... Uh, champion the idea of labeling GMO seafood and, and salmon in particular. I, I happen to represent 
a lot of the folks who still fish on the water for wild salmon, and I don't want them to be hurt by unfair competition from some of these, what, what they and many others view as frankenfish. Uh, but that's been really difficult as well. So um, it, it, is, it remains a disconnect, uh, but I agree with the premise of your question, and I want to continue uh, to make progress when it comes to our seafood labeling. Okay, well, <clears throat> I think we'll, uh, we'll close on that note. I want to thank again Congressman Huffman for giving us a really excellent overview and a great start to the day. I really appreciate your remarks, and I think it was a, a really great start. So thank Thanks you for much. having me. So I think what we're going to do here is roll right into our second uh, uh, conversation of the day, which is our panel uh, talking about the links between uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative uh, and its distant water fishing fleet and the impacts that uh, that, that fleet is having uh, around the world. So I'd like to welcome our panel up onto the stage. And I'm going to turn over moderating duties uh, to Dr. Tabitha Mallory, who is uh, from uh, affiliate professor at the University of Washington and also runs her own uh, ocean consulting company out in uh, Washington State and is a real expert on these matters. So I'll leave the introduction of the panel to her uh, and welcome everybody else up on stage. So thank you very much. Good morning and happy 2020. I'm really excited to be here to uh, discuss these important issues at one of the first events of the new year. I think it sets a great tone for the work that we have ahead of us. Um, this panel is about ports and fishing along China's maritime Silk Road. China has an enormous impact on our global oceans, both in terms of human security, environmental security, uh, China is the world's largest fishing nation. It's the world's largest producer of seafood. It's the world's largest subsidizer of its fishing industry. And it's also got the largest distant water fishing industry, which is operations on the high seas and in the coastal waters of other countries. And in recent years, China is increasingly supporting its overseas distant water fishing operations um, through the, constructive, the construction of fishing bases around the world. So this panel today, we're going to discuss some of those developments. I am joined uh, by four terrific panelists. Um, I'm going to briefly introduce them. I don't know if people got bios, but they're easy, their bios are easy to find online, but I don't want to take too much time uh, with the introductions. So Jonathan Hillman is a senior fellow at CSIS and is the director of the Reconnecting Asia Project, which features a database on China's Belt and Road Initiative, BRI. And his book on this topic, The Emperor's New Road, is coming out later this year. So he'll be sharing some of his thoughts on uh, BRI. Philip Cho is a senior advisor at Oceana. He has extensive experience working on, the, on global seafood sustainability. And he also speaks Mandarin Chinese and is an expert on Chinese fisheries policy. So he'll be telling us more about China's investments in fisheries in the context of BRI. Ernesto Fernandez Monge is an, is an officer at the Pew Charitable Trusts. 
He works on reducing harmful fishing subsidies. He's an expert in international trade law and has a great deal of experience, experience working with the WTO, uh, where negotiations to discipline fishery subsidies are ongoing. So I'm excited to hear some updates about that, because uh, I think the negotiations didn't really you know, tie up at the end of 2019. So he'll tell us more about that. And then Dahia Belhabib is Principal Investigator on Fisheries at Ecotrust Canada, which is a charitable trust located in Vancouver. Dia has also done a lot of work on the Sea Around Us project, uh, which is at uh, University of British Columbia, where she also did her PhD. Dia has done some really fantastic work on Chinese fishing operations in West Africa. I encourage you to check out some of her articles. And she'll be talking about some of the impact of Chinese activities on the ground, particularly in West Africa. So without further ado, I will turn it over to them. Great, thank you, Tabitha. Um, so I think my job here is to help provide a little context about what the Belt and Road Initiative is. Um, and to do that, I've got a few slides, if we've got them. Um, as Tabitha mentioned, I direct um, our Reconnecting Asia project at CSIS. Um, here we go. There we go, okay. So um, this is a, a, a picture of an interactive map that we have, and um, we designed this um, in hopes that it would be of use to people studying the Belt and Road Initiative and other infrastructure developments from many different perspectives. Um, and so you can go on our website, reconnectingasia.csis.org, and you can play around with this map. It's focused on the supercontinent of Eurasia. So um, yes, there's plenty of stuff happening in Africa and Latin America and beyond, but we had to start somewhere. Um, and in this bucket of about 14,000 projects, we're tracking about 300 ports. Um, and so that's a that those are projects with um, new activity since 2006. Uh, and so that's quite a bit of, um, that's quite a significant dimension of this great infrastructure build out that we're seeing um, with some implications I know for many of the issues we're talking about today. Um, and so let me just help sort of set the stage here and um, describe what I perceived to be China's Belt and Road Initiative. I think there's still a debate about um, what it actually is, and it changes a little bit every week. Um, but this is Xi Jinping's signature foreign policy vision. It was announced in 2013 in two components, uh, the overland belt, and somewhat confusingly, the maritime road. Um, and it includes um, very big figures that you'll read about, uh, up to $1 trillion in proposed infrastructure investment beyond China's borders. Um, so to put that into historical context, that's about seven times as large as the Marshall Plan would be in today's terms. Um, and we can talk about whether that's, those promises are being delivered, um, but this, that just gives you a sense of the scope of these ambitions. Um, and in addition to infrastructure, there's a whole host of other activities that are packaged under this Belt and Road Initiative. So trade agreements are discussed as being part of the Belt and Road Initiative. Policy coordination across a whole host of areas um, including in the maritime domain, are discussed and often negotiated in belt and road cooperative agreements. Um, and the port construction, which I mentioned earlier too, is obviously a big dimension of this. Um, and if you read about the belt and road, you'll see maps like the one that we have up here. Um, and this map both is a little bit modest in not showing you the true extent 
of the ambitions here because, as I mentioned, there's much more activity also in Africa. The Belt and Road stretches to Latin America now. Um, over 130 countries have signed on in one, in, in one way or another. Um, lots of international organizations have signed on as well. Uh, the Belt and Road extends to cyberspace and even outer space. And so, you know, you'd need several maps uh, and a 3D map probably to, to capture all of those dimensions. Um, and so in a way that this doesn't capture all of that, but in, in another way, this is actually overstating what the Belt and Road is because it's quite easy to draw a, a large line across a map. It's pretty difficult to bring those corridors into existence, whether you're talking about new overland trade routes or building new ports in, in underdeveloped areas. So many of the projects that have been announced are still ongoing. Um, these ambitions have yet to be achieved. Only a fraction of that $1 trillion in promised investment has been delivered. Um, and so I think it's worth noting that this is something that still continues, um, and it's something that there is an opportunity to influence and help shape, both from the recipient country's perspective, um, demanding um, that projects meet certain criteria or that policy coordination meets certain standards, um, and also from the U.S. perspective, because as big as the Belt and Road is, even that $1 trillion of promised investment, that's still only a drop in the bucket for what the world needs for infrastructure. So according to the, develop, the Asian Deve Development Bank, um, developing Asia alone needs about $26 trillion in infrastructure um, between uh, 2016 and 2030. So even if China delivers on these big promises, there's still a lot of, uh, a lot of need there and room for the U.S. to play a constructive role. Um, and so let me note just briefly why I think these are issues that this group in particular should care about. Um, so as China is going and making these deals, whether it's in infrastructure or trade, um, doing so under the Belt and Road banner, they are, are accumulating and exercising political influence. Um, and you see that whether it's on human rights issues, um, to have a Belt and Road country, per, or a country participating in the Belt and Road um, try to weaken a, a, a statement that's critical of China um, because of the prospect of investment or promise of investment. Um, there's also a whole range of economic activity that's going to have a, a, a real uh, environmental impact. Um, so whether you're talking about ports um, and the dredging that goes along with ports, or if you're talking about um, agreements that are signed that promise investment for ports, but only if access to local waters are granted for Chinese ships, um, there's a whole host of those issues um, or emissions from not only ships, but also the energy projects that are being built under this initiative. Um, and finally, there's a whole, there's a whole spectrum of um, strategic considerations um, that a place like CSIS will, is tracking closely and I think this audience will care about as well. Um, many of these projects are dual use, so you know, a port that is good at accommodating, lar accommodating large maritime vessels could also be used uh, to accommodate naval vessels at some point. Um, uh, an underseas cable that's help, helping to improve connectivity between countries could also be used to collect intelligence. Um, these are all, uh, you know, the nature of infrastructure. Um, and I don't want to suggest that the strategic motives are China's only motive, uh, but it's certainly something that we need to consider. Uh, and the reason why we have this, um, this database, and again, I hope you do check it out, let us know what you think, um, and we are, this is always a work in progress. We welcome your feedback on it. Um, you know, I do think that we need to think about uh, if we do want to have an impact in influencing 
how China is pursuing these projects, how recipient countries are reacting. We need to think about the incentives involved. Um, again, there's that huge need for infrastructure. The U.S. has an opportunity to play a constructive role. Um, and efforts to improve transparency are quite important as well. And so in our own modest way, we're trying to do a little bit of that with this database. Um, and I know many of you are working on that as well. So I will, I'll leave it there. Thanks very much. Hello, everyone. Uh, again, I'm Philip Cho at uh, Oceana. I'm a senior advisor there. Uh, and thanks for this opportunity to share with you some of the lessons uh, we've been learning uh, on China, particularly its uh, impact on global fisheries. I'm here to provide you some context for this uh, global fisheries impact. So first, briefly, just to let you know uh, who we are, uh, Oceana. Um, we are an international conservation organization that campaigns to achieve measurable change by conducting science-based policy campaigns with fixed deadlines and articulated goals. Uh, we essentially, our approach, we work with key decision makers and we leverage science, law, grassroots organizing, strategic communications, uh, and advocacy tactics to achieve uh, policy change. Um, we uh, currently work in 10 countries, and we're primarily focused on creating lasting, sustainable, and transparent fisheries in, in the largest fishing nations in the world. Um, and just uh, at the end of December here, we completed our scoping of uh, what, how we might work to address China's fisheries impact. So this is very timely, and thanks for that opportunity. So why focus uh, on the Chinese fleet? Uh, first of all, uh, it compromises approximately 40% of uh, global distant water fishing effort. And it's evolved from being primarily a state-run, state-owned uh, enterprise to, to privately owned, as, uh, as some estimates are now up to 70% 70, 70 private ownership in China. And there's also a real shift in the way that China is doing its distant water fishing. From being an offshore fishing country, meaning uh, flagged Chinese vessels uh, with uh, boats, uh, fishing vessels out there, to really a offshore fishing industry, meaning having active, active control uh, in other countries uh, of the seafood trade through uh, ownership of companies or joint ventures, uh, or, or just simply, as we have already mentioned, through political and economic influence. Uh, of course, uh, it is the largest distant water fleet right now. There are a lot of estimates out there, uh, anywhere to 3,000, 3,500 vessels, but uh, it's, it's difficult to truly assess the numbers uh, because of sort of the uh, opacity of, of, the, of the data. Uh, and it fishes in the exclusive economic zones of over 50 countries. Uh, uh, interestingly, uh, focusing on Africa, approximately 30% of China's fleet fishes in Africa. Uh, China's active in eight regional fisheries management organizations and is the country with, uh, that subsidizes its fishing the most at the tune of uh, 7.2 billion US dollars. Uh, 
that's followed by the EU uh, by 3.8 billion, Korea and Japan, but uh, their amount of subsidies is, is much higher than those other countries. So uh, I want to just show you this uh, visual uh, from Global Fishing Lots. These uh, lighted spots are basically Chinese flag vessels uh, across the globe uh, between uh, May and December of 2019. So you can see the breadth of activity that's occurring around the world. Also, uh, what you don't see uh, are vessels that might uh, have Chinese beneficial owners but aren't Chinese flagged. So that's a whole other uh, number of vessels up there that aren't up there actually, or vessels that don't transmit uh, what's known as AIS, how, how we track those vessels through satellites. Uh, and this is very typical of vessels such as the longline fleet, which catches uh, tuna. So um, basically, uh, as part of the scoping at Oceana, we've identified a number of issues that require uh, much further transparency. I'll quickly go over them uh, here, and then a little bit more in depth uh, with the rest of the slides. So firstly, our one-sided fishing access agreements. So that could be unethical or unsustainable uh, agreements with host countries in terms of getting fishing access. Secondly is overseas development assistance that might be secretly linked to fishing access, uh, using flags of convenience uh, and hidden beneficial ownership. That is, uh, it's very hard to tell uh, the true ownership of these vessels. Uh, next is the evasion of vessel monitoring and transshipment rules. Uh, also, uh, monitoring, control, and surveillance violations, such as turning off your signals that uh, broadcast to satellites to let you know your whereabouts, uh, or false or misleading registration and data. We've uh, talked a little bit about the no amount of subsidies, and also uh, we've already addressed uh, BRI. So a little bit into the one-sided access agreements. If we look, uh, for example, at West Africa, China actually has agreements in most uh, West African countries. Uh, and uh, some, all, many of these are considered quite uh, one-sided in terms of the advantage for, uh, of, of the trade uh, flowing to China. Uh, for example, here looking at the Ivory Coast, uh, it's a little hard to see, but that um, you'll see a wedge coming in at around uh, 1990, and those are uh, Chinese catch uh, of, of fish off of the Ivory Coast. You can see the trend that's increasing. But how about Ghana? Uh, if you look, uh, for China, you don't really see it very much. It's a very light green. But uh, if we dive closer into this issue of hidden uh, beneficial ownership, then we can see that many uh, of these vessels are actually linked to Chinese companies that are, that are behind the scenes. So this diagram was some investigation by a, a journalist organization like China, called China Dialogue that looked into this. Um, Further uh, issue we haven't mentioned yet is, is transshipment. This is the practice of, um, of fishing vessels uh, moving fish onto another vessel, which then takes it into port. And uh, Chinese vessels have been implicated in uh, a lot of transshipment activities. This is a map of uh, areas uh, that Global Fishing Watch identified where transshipments uh, uh, may have occurred. And Next, uh, in terms of subsidies, we mentioned China has the highest subsidies in the world. 
uh, on the far left. Uh, that, that sort of long, uh, light gray area are what are considered uh, capacity enhancing subsidies. And those are those that uh, build engine power or are for fuel. So those are uh, more likely detrimental in terms of fishing. Uh, we've talked about the Belt and Road Initiative uh, a bit already. And uh, you know, just want to mention one example here in Uruguay. Uh, on our, the shot on the left here, there's a circle around vessels that uh, are likely transshipped, and then on the right are vessels that are, um, are that have been missing their AIS signal. Well, you can see there's a pattern of distribution here of, of, of evading sort of, uh, of of tracking. So, uh, just to wrap up, I'll again repeat these areas that you know we've identified that we think needs definitely some more investigation. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, good morning, uh, everybody, and I would like to thank uh, CSIS for and the Stephen o Ocean Security Project for the invitation to this uh, to be part of this important uh, ocean security forum. Um, Pew um, Charitable Trust um, has a long story of working uh, in marine conservation, and we work with scientists such, such as Dihia uh, here to my left. Uh, to try to, to bring the data, uh, which is difficult, as uh, Philip just mentioned, uh, on, on this particular issue of, of fisheries, uh, and, and then try to influence uh, the government uh, officials, decision makers, to try to uh, make reforms that are, uh, are positive to, to the environment. Now, um, I will, there's a lot of information to cover related to WTO negotiations, but I will you know, try to, to, to be as, as brief as possible, and then in the q and I can expand a little bit more. Uh, but I also will be touching um, not only about the, the WTO negotiations, but also what the global perspective of, of, of subsidies that Philip has already mentioned some of, some of that, um, and, and then the role of China on this. Um, now, the fishery subsidy negotiations um, have been going on for almost 20 years at the WTO, uh, but there is, a, we believe, new political momentum. One, because of the Sustainable Development Goals uh, mandate at the highest level, and then because of the, the ministerial decision uh, at the la uh, last uh, ministerial meeting in, in Buenos Aires in 2017, where um, uh, members uh, decided to uh, single out uh, fishery subsidies from the rest of the Doha development agenda of the WTO um, and focus mainly on, on two issues, to prohibit uh, subsidies to contribute to overfishing and overcapacity and to eliminate subsidies that contribute to, to IUU. Um, um, so members initially decided that the, the deadline was to be the next, uh, by, to have an agreement by the next ministerial meeting, which was supposed to happen in December. However, because the, the host uh, is uh, Kazakhstan, uh, in December was to be probably too cold, so they decided to move it to, to the summer this year, uh, in 2020. Uh, however, they decided to keep the deadline of December, uh, and they, uh, however, they missed that deadline in, um, uh, last month. 
so, but now they're committed to uh, continue the discussions and try to have an agreement by, by June uh, 2020. Um, anyway, this is important because, uh, as, as we said, they single out the, the negotiations from the rest of the Doha round, which we believe is an opportunity uh, for members not to link this issue to other uh, important uh, discussions at the WTO, such as agriculture, uh, services, and, 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 and other aspects that might, might uh, uh, not be helpful in the process of, of having an agreement. Um, so, but before moving into the substance of what being discussed at the WTO, I want to just to give a brief description of, of, of the global uh, subsidy estimates that uh, Philip just, just mentioned uh, before. Uh, and we have been collaborating with, with Rashid Sumaila, the, the leading expert on, on fishery subsidies, and he published uh, recently the study uh, of the most recent estimates and the government and, and, and give uh, to the sector uh, a total of $35 billion annually. Um, Rashid has divided the, or classified the subsidies into three harmful subsidies that are uh, related to capacity enhancing, such as fuel or bulk construction, uh, and those are uh, amount to 22 billion, or 63% of the total. Th then beneficial subsidies, or positive subsidies, that are related to fishing management and conservation. Uh, it, those amount to 10, $10 billion, or 30%. And then ambiguous subsidies that, depending on how you manage them, could be either good or bad. Uh, now, China, as you can see here in the slide, uh, you know, you have the heat mat, and the lighter the color, you know, the more subsidies they give. So China is the biggest with more than $7 billion, which is more, roughly about 20% of the total. So it's, it's, as uh, we was mentioned at the beginning, is a significant, the dominant player in this, in these discussions, and, and however, it's not, it's not the only one. Uh, here is just another perspective that, you know, with the top 10 subsidizers and, you know, China being on top, here you can see that the, 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 class, the, the colors just represent the three categories that I just mentioned. Um, uh, so China being in the, not only the bigger, but the, the biggest subsidizer, but also the biggest subsidizer in terms of giving subsidies that are harmful uh, with the, the, the light red and the, and the red one, uh, colors. Uh, fuel subsidies being one of the most important ones. And the blue you can see is the, the good, good subsidies, the, the beneficial subsidies. So if you compare, for instance, with the U.S., the U.S., the, the, the majority are, are beneficial, which is important to consider. Um, now, as, as, as we mentioned at the beginning, uh, China is important player, uh, a big part of the puzzle, but it's not, not the only one. Everybody has a stake, and everybody will have to make commitment. This is a global problem. Now, Moving into the, the, what the, the, the WTO has been discussing, based on the, on the mandate, they have divided the discussion in four pillars, uh, disciplines on subsidies that contribute to IUU, subsidies that contribute to our fish stocks or fishing overcapacity, and cross-cutting issues. Now, the first two pillars, IUU and overfish stocks, seems that members have, there's a major consensus uh, uh, on, 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 on these issues, and but the sticking point is on overfishing or on uh, overcapacity, and there's a different approaches where there's a list of prohibitive subsidies where you use negative effect, or um, the most maybe significant proposal from the U.S. Uh, that is uh, uh, to establish a cap. So they will be allowed to give, continue giving subsidies to a certain uh, level, um, 
and this is where China has been uh, also engaged, and they have made their own proposal on the, on the cap. The only problem is that they link this to the ratio of current subsidies per fisherman. So given that they also have like about 10 million uh, fishermen, then the um, uh, commitments probably will be very limited. Now, uh, I just wanted to briefly mention an, a tool that we, that we have been coordinating with the University of California, Santa Barbara, and they have been looking at the distant water uh, uh, fleet fishing and the participation of China in the African, Caribbean, Pacific uh, region. And as you can see here, the numbers are, are very significant uh, with the number of vessels being a quarter of, of the vessels in present in those uh, exclusive economic zones of, of these three regions. Um, the effort uh, in terms of kilowatt hour, the engine capacity, and the time spent in the water, and the uh, subsidies attached to that effort. So as you can see, China is a, is a significant uh, uh, player in, in, in these regions. And then just finally, to, to give you an example of, of using also uh, the data from Global Fishing Watch, um, uh, the University of California, Santa Barbara, has uh, used that information with the subsidies from estimates from Rashid Somalia, and they have looked into the effort of all flag states. This is uh, just an example of Seychelles in the Indian Ocean. You can see uh, all flag states and the, and the capacity and the comparison with China, which is about uh, a quarter of, of the effort. Um, but then you can also compare the subsidies that are given to, um, the, um, uh, to these uh, fleets. Uh, and you can see here uh, the, all the subsidies that are given by all flag states and the subsidies that are given by China to these, uh, uh, to these uh, fleets, representing, for the case of, of Seychelles, for about half of, of, of the subsidies provided. So, and so the, this is the, the something, a tool that had been developed because of the concern of some of the members, uh, particularly developing countries as from these regions, uh, Africa, Caribbean, Pacific, that, uh, that uh, the concern of the distant water fleets coming to their waters to deplete their, their resources and that's something that they want, they're trying to address in the negotiations. So I know I've passed my time, so I'll finish here, and I'm happy to answer any other questions in the Q&A. Okay, let's go back. Uh, okay, so, I don't like stereotypes, um, and I'm going to talk a lot about them because China has been in the spotlight quite a lot these days. Um, I've been sitting at a negotiation table between a Chinese industry delegation negotiating access to Tanzanian fish stocks this summer with the Tanzanian government, and I was very frustrated that most of the stereotypes were actually quite fitting there. I was not very happy. See, China finds itself a lot in the spotlight in the media. So it has caused, the Chinese fleet has caused overexploitation of fish, African people go hungry. Um, they were even linked to, or at least speculatively, to piracy in the Horn of Africa. There was also a conspiracy theory that China has invented global warming to affect US trade and commercial interests. I'm not pondering a lot on that one. I don't have a lot of time for that. 
Uh, but it definitely, and I agree with our um, panel speakers here, it does place itself uh, strategically, which actually renders it quite vulnerable to this spotlight effect. A report that was produced last year by uh, CSIS um, shows the ports around Africa that China has built, operated, or funded, um, and it's quite really fitting what we're talking about here in, in terms of uh, placement and strategic placement in the region, both in the western coast and the eastern coast of the continent. And one might ask the question, so what? Well, the argument is that the Chinese mode of operation invites political um, concerns, but also national security and jurisdictional questions. And the counter argument often used by China is that they do not get involved politically, so there is no threat there. But there, there are a few examples, including the Kenyan um, failure to pay its loans back that actually illustrate quite the opposite. Um, I remember a book that I have read um, in 2011, I believe. It was called Chine Africa, it was in French, written by French reporters where um, an African dictator was, was saying that democracy doesn't feed his people. And that's actually quite fitting with the Chinese um, way of thinking, at least in there. Um, however, if China does not, even if China doesn't get involved, it kind of becomes an institutional sponsor of the status quo. And a congressman spoke uh, about it earlier, actually, about the lack of these policing strategies, for example, the EU's policing strategies with the red cards and the yellow cards. I would not necessarily agree that they're effective nor objective, um, but they, at least they exist and they try, which is not necessarily the case always, at least for China with regards to other trade, uh, to trade with other countries. There is more to worry about, and it was mentioned as well. Chinese seafood trade is worth nearly $100 billion a year. It represents 42% of all trade worldwide, and it operates 3,000, uh, actually the numbers were updated, 3,000 to 3,500 vessels globally, industrial vessels globally. Um, also, its fishing effort is higher than the 10 biggest nations combined, so in terms of uh, number of fishing uh, hours. Just like, did I skip a slide? So what is the business model and how did they get so big in such a short period of time? Um, I think it was Philip who showed you the example of Cote d'Ivoire. China actually started, like the distant um, fishing water fleet started operating um, in the mid of the 1980s. Um, so how did they get this big so fast? In the context of West Africa, so we know that fish there is quite important. It constitutes around 85% of the annual protein intake. So they don't eat chicken or pork or beef or pork. They eat mostly fish, even for breakfast. Uh, fishing is also a provider of good gender-balanced labor. 50% of the labor in the region is, are actually women, especially in the processing sector, who in turn provide education and health. They're the ones responsible within the household for education and health. Um, we're talking about a lot of issues in the region as well, so beyond the importance of the fishing sector, which also is actually uh, quite intangible because it is part of the culture. So we cannot just say, hey, if they don't have fishing anymore, they can just do whatever, because it's part of the culture, it's part of their traditions and history. In terms of issues, illegal fishing, they're not talking only about China here, um, generates a loss of $2.3 billion a year. If we take up the total estimate, this is nearly 10% in only six countries of West Africa, 10% globally. This is massive. Uh, most of the commercial fish stocks have been overexploited in the region, and fish stocks are targeted by too many vessels. We're talking here about overcapacity. So basically, too many vessels are chasing too few fish. 
And that's when China comes in. And I'm choosing my words really wisely here because all these issues have been happening even before China was in the region. So even before the 1980s, there was the Soviet Union there. The, Europe, the European uh, fleets were also operating quite heavily. There was already serial depletion of fish stocks and overexploitation. Then China comes in to take around 2.3 million tons of fish a year um, and only reports 8% of that. We can compare that to the EU who reports nearly a third of their catches in the region. Chinese catches are increasing over time, but they only pay around 4% of the total value that um, they actually lend, which is not much. And when they pay, they don't necessarily pay cash. They pay by, they pay by infrastructure, equipment, etc. So this is a model of agreement. For example, the EU, uh, EU agreement with countries, they pay for access to fish cash. Some of it goes to targeted users specified in the agreement, such as monitoring or scientific research, and part of it goes to the Treasury public, and part of it goes to the pockets of the few. Um, embezzlement and corruption is quite um, uh, obvious in the region. And then you have the Chinese model, sorry about that. And then you have the Chinese model where they pay, they do pay sometimes cash, but most of the time they will pay with, by building a stadium, by building a hospital, by buying military equipment, et cetera, et cetera. And that's readily visible within the economy. So you can actually see it. You don't necessarily know the value of it, but you can actually see it. There's always you know, money embezzlement and corruption going on. China is responsible for most illegal fishing in the region. That's the black that you can see in there, and mostly illegal fishing, and that's in brown. The type of illegal fishing is fishing without a license, which we know is an actual affront to a national jurisdiction, a national agency over domestic waters. This has been touched on earlier. So this is the structure of a, a company going from East Africa to West Africa. This is one single Chinese company. The black dots are vessels. The red ones are companies. So when it comes to sanctioning, it's really hard to determine who to actually sanction, who's responsible for what. And it doesn't stop at the industrial sector. It also embraces the traditional sector. So we have the psycho fishing in Ghana, which is basically artisanal and illegal, which is fueled by the Chinese practices of fishing within artisanal waters. Uh, you have also the fact that China is quite heavily invested in the region, both diplomatically and economically. It's really hard for African nations to investigate, for example, human rights abuses without fear of economic and diplomatic retaliation. So in conclusion, it's doomy and gloomy, and I think we can all agree on that. So just, I have like less than one minute left, so I'm, I'm summing up quite fast here. <laughs> um, there is definitely um, a lack of transparency when it comes to the practices, Chinese economic and diplomatic practices when it comes to negotiating uh, fishing deals and access to fish. There's a lot of illegal fishing and opacity there as well. And there is a lot of interest that are invested both politically and economically. So the answer to the implied question there, whether or not there's actually a threat to national sovereignty and state of affairs, I think the answer is quite obvious and it would be yes, it's present. Thank you very much. Great, thank you for a set of spectacular remarks and lots of interesting slides. Uh, I'll go ahead and ask the first question and then I wanna leave a little bit of time to open it up for your questions. So I guess I'll ask a question that has a couple different parts. Um, so our panelists all described a situation that is characterized by 
just not a lot of a lot not a lot of positives. Um, there's lots of concerns uh, about China's distant water fishing industry around the world. Um, but I want to ask if um, any of you have thoughts about opportunities to cooperate with China on this, and what are the potential uh, opportunities there. Um, China, for example, uh, in the last few years, has started implementing a marine ecological civilization building policy. Last year, they integrated IUU fishing into their fisheries law for the first time. And there have been other initiatives like this. They've also recognized that their distant water fishing industry has some, some problems that they need to address. Um, so I wonder, what are some opportunities to work with them? Who might potential partners for the US be and China? Um, and what are some possible models that we can look to? Because we, there's a history of other countries engaging in harmful distant water fishing practices, and a lot of that has gotten better. So what can we learn from those experiences? Can I? Um, I think we talked in the past about this, the blacklist that China has developed for its own fishing fleet, so, um, which is quite impressive to me, um, actually, because the EU doesn't do that necessarily. They, they, they have a register, but they don't necessarily blacklist their own vessels that often. Um, China does have a... I, I think it comes in to kind of negate this you know, stereotype and of bad behavior, but it's a, re a really good thing um, that they're doing. And there's also a platform, the Keystone Dialogue, Keystone Dialogue platform, and I believe there are a few Chinese companies on that platform already, like the bigger um, seafood trade or seafood companies, basically, that are part of that platform, which is quite positive. It's based in St the Stockholm Resilience Center, and I think it's a very good platform to begin um, engaging the industry as opposed to only the government with regards to the blacklisting practices, for example. I'm glad to, to have that you mentioned uh, thinking about some of the momentum that we might uh, work off of. And China uh, has been stepping up its game as a global leader. You, we've seen them uh, come to the table in terms of climate discussions, uh, as well as uh, you know, wanting to be included in, in more global fisheries discussions as well. So I think we should uh, look at these opportunities uh, and, and try to use them. Um, uh, just, a, just a quick few that I can think of are the uh, Port State Measures Agreement, for example. Uh, China is estab has established or is establishing its own distant water fishing management regulations. Uh, they've written into their own regulations things similar to Port State Measures Agreement. So I think there's opportunity to push forward on that and, and uh, move it forward. China often likes to do what they call uh, pilot projects. So they try to see if something will work at a small scale, often internally, and then if they know it can be successful, then they'll push forward on, on doing things at a, a larger scale or internationally. Uh, I, managed, managed, I mentioned the distant water fishing management regulations. They're supposed to be uh, heavier penalties uh, for violations as well as uh, more frequent uh, need for the satellite broadcasting from the fishing vessels that are a part of that. But those all are uh, political uh, discussions within the different agencies uh, in, in China that uh, we need to support groups that are trying to talk to them, to those agencies, to, to push forward. Uh, there are some groups in China who are, who are, who are working on this, NGOs, uh, talking to uh, government agencies, trying to push these things forward. Um, 
And then China also has uh, their five-year plans, uh, which are the sort of directives at the highest level of how they want to uh, act uh, in terms of development and economically. And uh, putting fishing on that agenda, particularly IUU fishing, I think could be very valuable in terms of getting uh, top-down uh, steering. So those are some of the thoughts I had in terms of areas that we might work on. Um, and uh, you know, some of you asked about models to, to look at. Uh, I think China's growth in fisheries has happened very quickly. And uh, there is still a need for uh, capacity building uh, in terms of uh, technique and, 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 and know-how. So a lot of groups are doing work on that uh, with, with Chinese government. Uh, I think both demonstrating those models of successful fisheries practices in other places, but also exerting enough uh, pressure in terms of evidence and facts of the problems that are going on have to be have to be put forward and put in balance. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I I would like to build on what Philip just mentioned of the, about the the Chinese leadership, uh, in in and I will talk about the leadership in at the multilateral uh, level, uh, particularly at the WTO. And and, and I I believe that uh, given that the WTO recently has become into a crisis mode, particularly because of the the issue of the dispute settlement um, uh, uh, discussions uh, with the U.S. Um, uh, blocking the appointment of uh, appellate body members at the, at the appeal uh, level. Um, I think um, they probably need, the WTO needs um, uh, 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 something to, to move the, the process forward. And I think the fisheries subsidy negotiations represent an opportunity um, to, to have an agreement. I think it's a lower-hanging lower fruit. And, and China will be uh, taking, if, you know, taking uh, if they can take a leadership and having an agreement uh, in December, that will be, that will be positive. Um, to 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 help to help the process, I don't think they will um, object uh, an agreement because they believe in the system. So so I think we need to take advantage of, of that. They have also been uh, engaging recently in the issue of plastic that was mentioned at the beginning of the session. So m there might be an opportunity there uh, to uh, partner partner uh, with China in the issue of plastics and the issue of debris. Uh, and then try to move these other issues along um, uh, in other fora, but also at the WTO. So I, I think there is a, an opportunity there. Thanks. So just briefly in the context of the Belt and Road Initiative, I think one of the, um, perhaps one of the opportunities about something that's so vague and constantly expanding is that you can take almost any issue and argue that it should be part of the Belt and Road. I've never heard a Chinese official say, no, that is not part of the Belt and Road. Um, so there are some groups, and I think this is a, this is a um, an approach that can work for generating policy change. Um, is to basically say, well, um, let us help you define this. And so, um, you know, when it comes to things like, you know, the when Xi Jinping says he wants the Belt and Road to be green, um, there are environmental groups that say, great, let's help, let's think through what that means. Um, here are some ways that we could ma actually make it green. Um, the, other, the other opportunity that I think exists is 
some of the criticism that China has received for not um, abiding by some international standards as it does these projects. And so I think um, officials have become more aware of the risks involved with those projects, uh, Chinese officials have, and certainly welcome um, uh, guidance and um, uh, input from others on how to improve those practices. Um, and so I think there's an opportunity there. They want partners both to share financial risk and reputational risk. Um, and so that creates opportunities as well. Great. So we are almost out of time. I've been told I can take five more minutes. We might not have a lot of time to actually answer the questions, but I would love to get some of the questions from the audience so at least we can have them on our minds. Um, so any questions from the audience? Maybe I'll go ahead and take three. Go ahead. My name is Joseph Gordon, and uh, I, I would just ask, uh, perhaps if not of this panel, of this uh, session today, is an historical perspective. Uh, not too long ago, we were talking about Japan in similar ways, and uh, I know they destroyed much of the U.S. fishing industry, which has not recovered since. And uh, is there any uh, historical uh, information that you might be able to, this is a, almost a, a hair on fire kind of uh, discussion, and, and I, I would like to put it in a, in a perspective to see what we could do and how we could learn from our uh, history. Okay, a couple more questions. How about in the back row over there? I might not have this exactly right, but I think um, the biggest exporting, um, the biggest country that we export to in the United States is China, and I think the biggest country we import from is China for seafood. I think it's EU is right up there, Japan might as well be up there. And so one could wonder what could the United States unilaterally do to influence this as a condition of market access? It would seem to be very ripe. Great. And then I saw a hand over there, Jennifer. <laughs> That'll probably be the last one, and then we might have a minute for some answers. Hi, Jennifer Turner. I direct the China Environment Forum, so I'm super nerdy, and I want to, maybe this is a Phil question. So the State Oceanic Administration was dissolved and kind of absorbed into the new, big, supposedly muscular Ministry of Ecological Environment. But I'm kind of wondering, I don't know, who is really the leader of, of, that you would talk to in China from the government? Because I'm not seeing MEE really like, woohoo wearing the big cape with spandex, like leaping into marine issues. So love to know who are the, who are the big dogs that we should be maybe talking to. Could be a CAS, let me know. Chinese Academy of Science or some other think tank. Oh, there you are. Yeah, I think quickly on that, um, the SOA responsibilities were divided between the Ministry of Environment and Ecology, or Ecology and Environment uh, and the Ministry of Natural Resources. But, uh, and there's a couple other, agencies that also have some jurisdiction now, but it has made it more challenging because it was really great to go through the SOA. Okay, so we have two minutes. Any thoughts on the questions that we've gotten? Yeah. Um, so just a, a quick thought on the, the question about history. I think that is worth um, pausing on for a second because many of the behaviors that we're seeing um, are certainly, they evoke echoes of great powers that have come before China. And so literally in some places of the world, China's building projects alongside old colonial projects, you know, building a, a rail uh, project in Kenya that runs parallel to a, a railway built by the British. 
I think what that history um, teaches us is that those projects, when they're done unilaterally and without um, you know, enough consultation of groups in the countries in which they're done, uh, tend to have pretty devastating consequences. And so you know, it's not just out of um, uh, goodwill that you know, multilateral development banks and international institutions like that have been created. They were created also out of self-interest from uh, larger countries to protect themselves. And so I think you see China doing some of this learning as it goes um, out uh, in bigger ways, um, starting to feel the, the repercussions financially and reputationally. Um, and so I do think that those lessons are, are, are worth learning from. It just might take a little more time. Any last words? Uh, just in response to the question about what the U.S. could do unilaterally, uh, of course we monitoring protocols, but there, I think those could be strengthened in, in various ways, uh, both in terms of uh, the documentation of the catch, uh, uh, further requirements on, on the vessels and how they operate uh, to allow whether or not we allow the import of seafood. Uh, I think there can be different measures uh, applied uh, to those uh, importing protocols uh, and looking, for example, to uh, Europe in some ways in terms of best practices on, on that. Okay, with that, we're out of time. Um, we now have a coffee break um, for 10 minutes, and then we will reconvene. So thank you so much. Okay, I think we're running a few minutes behind, so if I could ask folks to wrap up their conversations and uh, have a seat, we'll get rolling. We have a really exciting second panel, and uh, we've got quite a bit to cover before uh, our closing keynote, so I want to make sure we have a chance to, to get through everything here. So uh, just quickly, thanks again to that really excellent first panel. I heard a number of conversations at the break basically saying, boy, we could have gone another hour just talking about that issue set. That's a really complex and large issue set, and I really do appreciate uh, all the panel participants uh, uh, for willing to come here and offer their expertise and insights, and I really look forward to working with all of you uh, on that issue, on those issues uh, moving forward. Uh, so we're gonna shift back uh, now to um, the other half of, uh, of that uh, topic set that I talked about at the first uh, in the first opening remarks and that uh, Congressman Huffman uh, spoke to, which is that interlinkage between um, IUU, illegal unreported unregulated fishing, uh, and human rights uh, challenges in the global seafood supply chain. Uh, this is an issue that I think has come uh, much more to the fore over the last couple of years as a really uh, twinned and, and linked set of challenges. Um, and what we're going to do, we're going to do something uh, just ever so slightly different uh, to open up our panel. We've got four great panels here that I will uh, introduce and moderate as we go to it. But before we do that, I first want to introduce uh, our good friend, uh, Johan Bergenas, who is Senior Director at Vulcan Inc. and is helping them think through um, how they are supporting ocean uh, policy and ocean philanthropic challenges around the world. Uh, Vulcan has produced a great film that I'll let him talk a little more about 
that takes a little deeper dive on these issues. Thank you, Witt, um, for having us, and thank you for your leadership on these issues at CSIS, together with Mr. Stevenson and others in this room. Um, so my name is Johan Bergenas. I'm a senior director at Vulcan, which is the late Paul Allen's organization out of Seattle. And as Witt alluded to, we run a series of programming around ocean health on policy, technology, uh, and we have a film uh, production studio, uh, which last year released a film called Ghost Fleet that looks at the uh, uh, devastating slavery implications in the seafood industry. Uh, and I will show you a brief clip here to set the scene for this wonderful panel that, that the team has put together here. Uh, and as you will see, uh, we follow activists who are trying to save those men and some women, I suppose, who have been enslaved uh, in the seafood supply chain uh, and bringing them back and rehabilitating them into uh, regular life again. Um, you know, I think it's a wonderful compliment. We saw the congressperson here today. We see programs like WITS. Uh, we hear about Ian Urbina's book. Uh, this film is trying to reach a mass audience and stimulate awareness in the public. And part of our impact campaign has been to focus on engaging uh, the private sector, the private sector who is in one way or the other part of the seafood supply chain. And over the last few months, uh, maybe a year or so, we have engaged about 550 uh, companies in that space. Um, and our partner has also been here today, Fishwise, to that, so we're very proud of that. So without any further ado, thank you for the opportunity, Wit. Um, hopefully this transition will be seamless to our uh, trailer, or slightly extended trailer of Ghostly. Thank you very much. Quite so seamless. คนที่กลับมาจากเรือเนี่ยมันมันเหมือนไม่ใช่คนอะ่ะเหมือนผีดิบที่เดินได้อะ่ะแล้วตาแต่ละคนอะ่ะมันจะเหลืองเพราะเขาไม่ได้นอน
มันก็ไม่ต่างกับคนที่ตายแล้วเหมือนกันนั่นแหละแล้วคําพูดของพวกเขาจะสตอรี่เดิมเกิดอะไรขึ้นแล้วก็ร้องไห้แล้วก็เจ้าหน้าที่ของ RBA ทำเรื่องประวัติประสานงานกับภาครัฐอยู่ในเรือแล้วฝันแม่ไม่มีเวลาฝันเมื่อเราตกเคยคลายอย่างคลั่งมันเคยทำมันมาหนุ่มชมุกโกนหรือโกนวิ่งได้คือยำเนื้อตุกนั่งไปจุดบนบานชนะผมหัวชนะจีงเจ้าบาดวิ่งแรกยำเนื้อตุกมึงใจครึ่งยืนเอาอยู่สุขไอ้พวกเราปรายกันเดียกาดีสาดีใจบาดไอ้คือใบบางกว่านั้นยืนข้อมาดองหรือยืนนั่งชื่นชอบได้แบบที่อาจปัญตาเล่นเอาหนุกตักไอ้สีจะลำเป็นติดตัวบวมเราไปก็มาช่วยยุ่งทาโนเตอร์ยุ่งบนโนเตอร์มันจะทัดโนมันไอ้มันมันมันจะไม่ได้ต้องหาหมดหาเลยเลยยุ่งก็ยุ่งก็มันจะทัดโนมันจะทัดโนตั้งเตอร์เฮ้ยมันก็ต้องไอ้ยุ่งหาหมดเลยไม่เคยฟังตัวนี้เลยมิดมาอย่างที่เมาคุณจับหลังคุณที่ที่ที่จะประสานจะขึ้นที่บันสำหรับเจ้าขอคอมตรงนักขึ้นถ้าคอมถ้าอ้อยอ้อคือสำหรับกายสำหรับแค่ถึงไม่พอแต่บ้านเตรียมบ้านตอนคนวอกอีกมดกู้วอกอีกมดตึกมอเลยพอหลอนขวดตักมือพองดังเบอร์เลือกขึ้นยังไม่ขึ้นยังคนมองก็มองแบบนี้ไม่ตู้สุมิมพีมาสารไม่อิสรีเนี่ยสุดเทลโฟนสุดกษิตาวิตูอาดาสปีดโบ๊ทอะมันมานี่เองได้ไหมมาโดโบ๊ทได้ปะสปีดโบ๊ทมันสิบปีของคือช่วงเวลาของการรับเรื่องอะมันสิบปีสิ่งที่เราทําได้คือเราช่วยคนเหล่านั้นกลับมาได้แล้วความจริงมันก็จะเปิดเผยเองคนที่กลับมาเนาะเขาก็บอกว่ามันน่าจะยังมีอยู่ที่คนที่ติดเกาะอยู่ที่เกาะนู้นเกาะนี้มีอีกหลายๆเกาะนะคนไม่สามารถจดจำได้ว่าพวกเขามาจากไหนหากพวกเขาโชคดีพวกเขามักจะว่ายน้ำไปยังเกาะที่อยู่ใกล้ๆเียสัมเปียรูมาเียยกกาเียยอาเดียยมามาสบกดปะเียสูเียบาเลเพื่อที่จะกลับมาพ้องบริษัทที่กดขี่ข่มเหงพวกเขาแต่ถ้าพวกเขากลับบ้านพวกเขาก็อาจจะต้องทิ้งลูกเมียไว้ข้างหลังเป็นเวลาแรมปีจะไม่นั่งเงี้ยฮะเ
Pencil Zone I have a pencil big, big pencil because in the past I have a thinking a lot when I operate, I think new idea, new product. with their family for seven years, nine years, twelve years.
<clears throat> Thank you to uh, Vulcan uh, and Johan for allowing us to share that clip. I, um, I wanted to do that today because I think you know, we talk uh, a lot about uh, policies and abstract and um, abstract regulations and, uh, and how these things um, intersect here in DC can feel very removed, but we are, after all, talking about people in a very real way. And so when we're, walk when we're talking today, when the congressman was talking earlier, when we're talking here on this panel, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about folks uh, who are real and who are really impacted. Um, and that's just one side of that coin. You know, that's the, the human side of the coin. There's also the ecological side of the coin. And how those two things intersect, I think, is something that we are beginning to have a better understanding of and a better um, sense of the need to grapple with them together. But how we do that is a very complicated thing and a very complicated question um, for legal reasons, for political reasons, for human rights reasons. And so I'm very excited today to have this great panel of experts to talk about this. Um, I'm gonna quickly run through. I think we've got a lot to talk about and, and um, not as much time as we'd like. So um, I'm gonna quickly introduce everybody and then turn it over to them. And then hopefully at the end, we'll have time for uh, at least a short discussion. So uh, <clears throat> immediately to my left, we've got Amal Mira, who is the managing director of the Freedom Fund. Um, then we have uh, Roberta Elias, who is the uh, Director of Policy and Government Affairs at World Wildlife Fund. Uh, Jenny Barker, I'm sorry, Brad Sewell, uh, who is the Chief Fisheries Analyst at Ocean Mind. And Jenny Barker, who is the Chief of Party uh, with the Seafood Alliance for Legality and Traceability and Fishwise. So uh, I think we've got a great conversation. I think we're going to go from sort of the big picture, talk about uh, US policy, technological opportunities and challenges, and then corporate accountability schemes. So thank you, I'll turn it over to you, Amal. Great, thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Wit and CSIS for putting on this event. Um, you know, I think it makes sense for me to go right after Ghost Fleet, which is a sobering film and a reminder about the scale of the challenge um, in just the seafood sector alone, right? Like we're looking at a situation of forced labor um, that is not just a um, uh, sort of a one-off. This is a symptom. This is a hallmark of the sector as a whole. So the efforts that are being taken by groups like the Freedom Fund and our partners on the ground, we fund and we support um, you know, a, a, a plethora of partners that are frontline civil society organizations in the fight to address forced labor um, in the seafood sector in Thailand with our partners at Humanity United. You know, these are really the heroes of this story. Um, but I want to take a little bit of time to talk about some of the sort of the ways that um, people are impacted. You saw Patima's, um, the, the men that Patima was working with there. You know, the, the sector is, empl the employees of the sector, if you can call them that, are mostly migrants. And they, therefore, they come into that situation with a tremendous amount of vulnerability already. Many of them have been um, brokered into those positions illegally. They've been told that their jobs might be in a factory in Thailand, let's say, um, when they find themselves all of a sudden smuggled onto a boat and they spend spend years and years living on the boat, working tirelessly um, in situations of forced labor. Oftentimes, these men are completely isolated psychologically and physically. Um, they are separated from the land and community and, and their families. Um, and what's more is when these men are, in fact, rescued um, or there are uh, efforts made to reintegrate them or they're freed or they find their own freedom, there are 
potential repercussions from the government because these men are situations of migration. Many of them are illegally migrants. So we've actually had a number of our partners who were detained by authorities upon being rescued from situations of forced labor on these boats. One of our partners, uh, one of the stories of one of our, um, uh, an individual that we, we are, one of our partners was working with named So, he in fact was detained by two months uh, by the Thai authorities after he was rescued. So you see the cycle of exploitation continue along from the, uh, the migration quarter, but then also to how they are treated um, by authorities themselves. Um, I also want to underscore in my remarks a bit about the corporate accountability piece to this, right? We've all seen the news and we've seen that there has been an increased focus on the ways that corporations themselves are through their purchasing practices, through their sourcing, um, and through what they're offering to us as consumers, enabling human rights abuses. We've seen this in the apparel sector, we've seen this in uh, the mineral sector, conflict minerals work, and we're seeing it more and more in the seafood sector. We are seeing corporate responses, but I would argue that they're not enough, right? We're not seeing corporations effectively use their leverage to support things like freedom of association, um, in countries where these rights are not protected or respected. Um, we're not seeing corporations uh, ensure that, that their purchasing practices are not themselves setting conditions down upon the supply chain that are impossible to meet. Um, you know, how does a corporation expect how does a supplier, um, how, how is a supplier gonna fulfill an order that changes a week before the, um, the delivery date? Um, you know, so the, the ways that corporations are engaging in their own supply chain through their purchasing practices has also a tremendous amount of impact on the prevalence of labor abuses and precarity of work in those supply chains. Um, and the last thing I'll mention around the corporate accountability piece is the role of government. We've seen the U.S. government exercise perhaps um, more muscle as of late around trade tools um, and the use of an, uh, a law called the Tariff Act, which prohibits the importation of goods made with forced or child labor. Um, and we've seen the U.S. government sort of flexing by using this act. Um, and it's good, right? It sends the message to corporations that they should engage in some due diligence and ensure that their supply chains are rid of these harms. But at the same time, I think we need to examine, and hopefully we can do this in this panel, whether these potentially punitive measures like trade restrictions have a disproportionate impact on labor in those countries, right? What are we doing with the fact that labor will be displaced or you know, factories may be shut down because of these, um, these trade tools? So I think that the, we have to sort of evolve the conversation around the appropriateness of regulation to address issues like um, this. And um, I'm really keen to hear from my fellow panelists who have perhaps more of an environmental specific background about the sort of need for us to think intersectionally about the linkage between labor rights and environmental issues when we look at sectors like seafood and the lessons that we can learn by doing this right in seafood that we can apply to other sectors as well. Thanks. Thank you. Roberta. Well, and thank you for that tee off. I think the conservation community, the security community, the human rights and labor communities have been working together more hand in hand, and I right. think together we're much stronger. Um, that, that tees up sort of my first line very nicely, which there are so many different pathways that got us to this room today, whether that be an expertise in security, conservation, labor and human rights, or jobs, mm -hmm. and really creating a level playing field um, across the sector. And when you think about each of those pathways individually, we're really talking about core decency and, and really key American interests. Um, 
but taken together, you end up seeing a real mandate for change. And that means change across the board, but because I'm the federal policy person, I'll talk about federal policy. And to me, that means creating the mandates from the top down, but also supporting the type of action you need to see from the bottom up. Um, fortunately, each of the challenges that we've talked about in that video, each time I see it, there's nothing like crying on a panel, um, is so sobering. Um, what's positive is that the federal playbook for each of those narratives is more or less the same, and that the U.S. government across administrations has taken the first steps in really making, making a major change, but there's so much more to be done. We all know in this room that the U.S. is the largest single nation market for imported seafood, we import roughly 90% of the seafood we consume in this country. It's estimated that roughly a third, which is a staggering number, of the wild-caught seafood that we import is illegally harvested to begin with. And that's just looking at contravention of the conservation laws, not necessarily taking into account the labor violations as well. When I leave this very stunning and impressive room, I'm going to come um, back home and become a mom again and go to the grocery store. And what I don't want to have happen in that real role that we all play outside of our jobs is to have my dollars going to support those types of activities. Right. Um, and that's where, in my mind, government and industry comes along. So I'm going to highlight four basic policy changes that I think need to happen. One is along the supply chain. One is really thinking about changing the behaviors of nations as a whole. The third is um, the idea of capacity building global leadership. And then I'll end with transparency, and Brad will say something much smarter than me about technology. Um, the congressman, and it's always um, so impressive to hear a congressman who can speak in such detail and with such authority and power on such an important issue. So huge kudos to that office and to CSIS for bringing him here today. We all know about the Seafood Import Monitoring Program, which is the system the U.S. has in place to just ask some really basic questions as a condition of access to the U.S. market. What is this fish? Who caught it? When, where, and how? To really start using those questions as a key tool to drive change on the water. Great system. Huge thanks to the Obama administration for putting those rules in place and to the Trump administration for ratifying it. Those rules only apply, and these are some really basic, bare-bones standards, to 40% of the value and volume of what we import, and not to the feed that goes into things like shrimp that are included in the program. That program must be extended to all species and be implemented in a way that's really meaningful. There are species that look just like the species that are included, that are not included, and that creates an easy pathway for laundering. That system, and the laws are already on the books for this, needs to also be extended to include labor rights violations. And whether that's done in the same way through a um, requirement for information, fine, or there could be another pathway looking at some of the EU models of really thinking about requirements for due diligence plans. And at the end of the day, on the supply chain side, there needs to be meaningful enforcement. Mm -hmm. Until the supply chain actors are scared that um, meaningful action is going to take place, change is not going to happen. In terms of nation-based pressure, asking information as a condition of access makes all the sense in the world. The U.S. already has the tools on the book to create a true analog to the EU carding system. The U.S. government must be putting pressure on countries to change practices at the national level for both natural resource violations and, again, for labor rights violations. The administration committed to doing that by the end of this term um, at the H&R um, Wildlife Oceans and 
water, oceans, and wildlife hearing that the congressman referenced before, we need to all hold the administration accountable to actually coming through on that because the laws are on the books. They need to take advantage of them. We also need an all-government approach. There's one thing about driving change from where we hear, sit here remotely in D.C., but we need to be following up on that in countries. Um, that involves capacity building for putting in place real and meaningful labor standards, putting in place the basic building blocks of sustainable fisheries management. The U.S. on the security side needs to be doing more in terms of joint enforcement. Um, and then really using as we revise trade agreements like with the recent um, revised NAFTA, the USMCA, making sure that the concepts of um, IEU fishing are really embedded across the board as we work globally. And then finally, we've done so much about information, nation-based um, pressure, traceability. We need to really make some significant ground on transparency. We have so much technology. We're all sitting here with our phones and all of our widgets. Um, there's so much technology today that can be used to really modernize the way fishing works. And we need to use the policy levers to incentivize consistent adoption of those. So I'm talking about continuous use of AIS as a key enforcement and verification tool, um, unique vessel identifier, but also creating transparency of the basic rules, rules of the road for fishing operations. So um, fisheries access agreements, labor standards, and then transparency of information across supply chains. So from the time a product is harvested to enters a market and then to its final destination. And those are my comments. Then that is a uh, perfect segue to Brad, who's gonna talk a little bit about those tech opportunities and how we might <clears throat> merge some of the emerging world of, of fish uh, uh, management tech and, and human rights tech. Thanks, thanks, Whit. Uh, see if this works. Yeah, can I get the other uh, clicker? Thank you very much. Let's see if that goes. Nope, nope. <laughs> I will let somebody else play with that for a minute. Do you guys have control in the back? All right. Well, uh, while we're working on that, um, so my title of my slide, actually perfect segue against this, um, is uh, what should we be paying for shrimp? Uh, this is perfect. Thank you very much, sir. And I think it's really important to put in the context because it captures a lot of different uh, uh, aspects is that from a policy context there are so many negative externalities for those of you familiar with policy analysis this is this idea that when we engage in an economic transaction there are economic costs on others that are not captured in the price of the good this is a huge part of issues in the environmental sphere in the labor sphere uh, and it really covers so this is carbon, this is uh, labor, uh, this is parking. It's, it's, it's core to a lot of how we agree to work with each other. But if we just take it back to shrimp for a second, uh, and that idea of, uh, you know, as a, a good uh, friend of mine says, you know, you can have sustainability, you can have justice for workers, but you can't also have cheaper price. But the economic system we live in demands that cheaper price. Uh, and it, I would ask right now, you know, show of hands, how many people in the last week have eaten, or last say over the holiday season, show of hands, how many people have had shrimp in the holidays? So over half the crowd here. Now, how many of you know where that shrimp came from? 
good on the panel, excellent choice. And I'd hope at an ocean security, uh, at an ocean security meeting that uh, a healthy number would. Now, uh, you know, varsity level question, how many people know where the feed came for that shrimp? All right, and if anybody raised their hand, we'd have some questions afterwards because uh, there's so little transparency. And of note, the Seafood Import Monitoring Program actually stops at feed. Uh, most of the shrimp you eat uh, is imported. It is aquaculture grown. We go catch other fish to feed to those shrimp. Uh, and that is also competing with demands for uh, the salmon industry, for the pork industry, for chicken. Uh, you know, China, the, the price of feed is driven by Asian swine flu in China. Uh, so we have a very large commodity industries here that are very fungible. Uh, they can move very easily between sources. But when you think about the price of your individual shrimp cocktail, you have to think about the labor environmental standards on board a purse saner off of Peru, a tuna longliner in the Marshall Islands, a grow pond in rural Thailand, a processing uh, plant uh, that with thousands of individuals working in it outside of Bangkok, and then the shipping costs for that to then get packed in a value-add facility somewhere else in the world and then come to us here. Are we really paying the right price for that? Uh, and then think about all of the different environmental and social implications along the way. So I think that's the, the key question is to understand that uh, I don't want to frame this as just a, a individual choice um, of, a, of consumers. We have to think about the system here, but that's uh, a key aspect. Uh, just to highlight before I jump into the technology aspect and how these things interplay, uh, Ocean Mind in particular, we are a nonprofit based in the UK. Uh, primarily also uh, working globally. We focus on working with governments uh, to help them identify illegal fishing, providing capacity building, as well as a lot of remote sensing analysis and on-the-ground support. Uh, and we work with seafood buyers to provide validation, due diligence processes, uh, and help them with implementation of systems so that they can identify labor uh, and illegal fishing risks inside their supply chains. Uh, important to note here, uh, again, on that price driver, this is a UN uh, status of fisheries uh, report through time. Uh, wild capture has been basically static for the last three to four decades globally for fish stocks, and yet we're seeing increased pressure. The amount of biologically unsustainable fisheries is increasing, uh, and this is mostly driven by the fact that we have static supply and increasing demand because we've added a few billion extra people in that time and they're all richer than they used to be. They would like to eat the same things that the rich countries in the West also ate. I'm obviously talking primarily about China, but also India, Indonesia, many growing countries around the world. So we have to think in this context of there are going to be, you know, basic economics, static supply, increasing demand, no matter what you try and do to lock that demand, that increases incentives for non-compliance, uh, which is really what we see uh, from a human rights perspective as well as an environmental perspective. An industry approach to this is being modeled right now in Thailand with the Seafood Task Force. We've been working with the Seafood Task Force and the Royal Thai government uh, for about three and a half years now. And uh, I think uh, 
uh, Jenny, I don't know if you're there next week too. A few of us are going to be in Bangkok next week for the Seafood Task Force meeting. And this is a, a joint approach and collaboration between industry and government to identify and rectify problems with illegal fishing and uh, forced labor. Uh, this involves uh, basically learning from each other uh, and sharing feedback collaboratively. Uh, this involves, uh, so Ocean Mine's been providing capacity building, analysis uh, assistance to the Thai government, as well as to the Seafood Task Force, along with many other NGOs, uh, including Fishwise, WWF, Pew, and others working collaboratively with industry to identify these problems. And that led to the EU lifting their yellow card earlier this year. That does not mean that the problems are fixed. Uh, I really want to emphasize that point. There are still significant issues in Thailand, but they have demonstrated uh, serious leadership. Uh, that is, uh, there's definitely a lot of countervailing pressure for those of you who follow seafood trade news. Uh, but I would say that there's much better visibility and transparency on these issues in Thailand than in many other major shrimp-producing countries. And while I'm talking about shrimp here for the most part and feed, because those trawlers we saw earlier in Ghost Fleet, they were supplying a meal that would get turned into shrimp. Those are those fed to shrimp as a significant bycatch. Uh, you could substitute any other major fish commodity here, especially on the feed sector. Uh, trawl bycatch around the world, especially in the tropics, is a significant portion of feed as well well as within, uh, I should ha obviously highlight, uh, Peruvian anchovy off the west coast of South America. So uh, scale of the issue, um, that we're looking at the Gulf of Thailand here. Uh, all those little uh, white and green dots are fishing vessels. Uh, sort of, so Cambodia is off to the right, the large dark area, that's Bangkok. Uh, this is a, just a photo with a digital SLR camera by astronaut Tim Peake from the International Space Station a couple years ago. I love this, because uh, it just gives you a sheer scale of all the vessels we have to monitor. This is a small EEZ with over 10,500 commercial vessels, the majority of whom are trawlers. Uh, and this is what a lot of the developing world, middle-income world, is having to deal with right now. When we say, go make sure there's no illegal fishing or forced labor, okay, where do you start? Uh, so it's a big data problem. It's not enough to just have a data and put transponders on everybody. You have to make it meaningful. On top of that, you also have to think about all of the imports. Uh, this is the tracks from AIS of all of the foreign flagged fishing vessels and carriers who made call to Thailand to discharge product in a single year. That doesn't count the donor vessels who offloaded to those carriers, which would expand that map dramatically, which means that a port state measures inspector in Thailand has to know functionally the rules uh, and conduct analysis uh, for risk for every arrival from almost every major fishing ground in the world when it comes to tuna, but especially, obviously, the Western Pacific uh, and the Indian Ocean. Uh, but this creates significant demands, even though we have the tools in the tool bag to do it from both a technology perspective uh, as well as a, a legal perspective. I'll come back to that in a second. One of the ways we can help with this is through machine learning. Uh, what you see on the right, if the uh, there we go, as the animation activates, is a algorithm that's been trained to look at the position reports of an individual vessel, uh, trained using human analysis. Computers only know what we teach them. Uh, so we can, in fact, teach them to look at the tracks of vessels and interpolate, or excuse me, extrapolate uh, fishing activity uh, if you have qualified analysts, and we've been working with the Thai government and others on this, that you can then convert 
convert into alerts of illegal fishing. Uh, this is really the only way we're going to get there because most fisheries departments in the world don't have the resources to manually click on every single boat. That just doesn't work. But then just think about the U.S. fisheries regulations. Can, uh, in the case of Thailand, we had to code over 800 individual regulations. Uh, imagine taking the uh, U.S. Code of Federal Regulations, even just the 50 CFR, um, which covers uh, natural resources, and codifying that in computer-based language. That's the kind of thing we have to do in some of these countries when we're talking about thousands and thousands of individual fishing vessels. We are currently researching, um, and it's not sure if it'll work yet, but our, our fingers are crossed, the ability to take that same approach and try and identify labor uh, violations, most particularly related to work hours. There's obviously going to be some error bars on this because an individual hour of vessel activity doesn't correspond perfectly to an hour of uh, human activity, but a lot of the regulations around for uh, labor on board boats have to do with work hours uh, and rest hours over periods of time. Uh, so we're in the process of researching this to figure out if there's ways to automate this and make it easier for the relevant authorities to identify when there's something that needs to be investigated. And that's really what technology is about. It doesn't solve our problems by itself. People still have to uh, decide that that's a policy thing they want to achieve. There has to be leadership. There has to be implementation in addition to the legal tools and the technology tools being available. And along those lines, I would highlight that one of the major blocks from an industry perspective, uh, you know, I, I started out in, in government, um, and, uh, you know, when you start in the U.S. Coast Guard, uh, they teach you your authority and your jurisdiction. What laws are you allowed to use and where and when are you allowed to use them? Uh, and we've created a lot of laws and a lot of... Uh, different international instruments to address issues. Uh, from an industry perspective, it's pretty crazy. Uh, it is really hard to know when and where different things are supposed to be uh, followed. And I would just highlight, you know, a flag state authority versus a coastal state authority, that's pretty clear. But product coming into a country from a, a carrier versus a container, completely different legal authorities for inspection. Port state measures versus port state control, totally different departments, different international instruments involved from different UN agencies. When does the Maritime Labor Convention apply versus Convention 188? And oh, by the way, the definition of a fishing vessel is different if you're talking about labor than if you're talking about fisheries violations. These things are not easy for everyone to cross, uh, but one of the things that we've been working with the Seafood Task Force and others on is finding ways to implement due diligence process systems that account for all of these different variables and make it easy. Uh, there's, we're not going to go back and clean up our legal codes, clean up our international instruments, but there are some initiatives similar to uh, what I have on the left is called the, the British Standards Institute uh, PAS 1550, which was a great initiative by several uh, different NGOs as well as working with retailers, mostly in the UK, but also other parts of Europe, to consolidate a lot of these different instruments from both a labor and an environmental perspective to implement uh, low-cost due diligence systems that could capture some of these individual problems on a shipment-by-shipment -shipment basis. Uh, and I think that's really where the opportunity is here, too. You need government to level the playing field and to create uniform standards, but you also have to make it straightforward for industry to uh, take advantage of the knowledge that comes from data and technologies, because 
uh, without that, we're you know, and the given price points we're talking about, you're just not going to see the change that's required. So that's one of the reasons that uh, doing this as cheaply as possible uh, is is a key element because, especially in the food sector, it's high volume and low margin for the most part. Uh, and until we start pricing uh, the products appropriately for the externalities, you're not going to really see uh, the change in mass that's required. So I'll uh, leave it at that, and thank you again, Wit, for the invitation and uh, the great panels today. Great, thanks, Brad. And that's a, that's again a great segue to Jenny Barker, um, who's going to talk to us about some of these corporate accountability programs and how we can better incentivize corporate behavior. Hi, great. Thank you very much. Um, as <clears throat> thank you all for staying for the fourth and final panelists here, um, and I understand we have great closing. <clears throat> um, comments as well. Uh, my name is Jenny Barker. I am with Fishwise, and I act as I'm sorry, is that a um, I act as a chief of party for the Seafood Alliance for Legality and Traceability. Uh, for those of you who may not know Fishwise, uh, we started in 2004 really with a mandate to support industry in achieving their sustainable seafood goals. And in that time, we've really grown our expertise in the traceability and into social responsibility. Um, we believe that collaboration on such big global issues is really essential and important. So we try to bring together various stakeholders in different areas to um, create better rules and strategies for dealing with transparency and combating human rights uh, abuses in seafood supply chains. And then we also create tools, uh, learning platforms, really with the intent to share knowledge and information to allow the entire um, movement to move forward to address some of the most pressing issues that we see. Um, and we're using some form of all of these approaches as we look at human rights issues in um, seafood supply chains. <clears throat> um, we partner with the seafood industry to achieve some of their most ambitious uh, responsibility commitments. And our relationships with industry are really our, our primary business. We partner with large retailers like Target, Hy-Vee, Albertsons, um, and you can see here the breadth of what that allows us to touch um, around the world as far as suppliers and the pounds of seafood we deal with annually. Uh, today I'm here to share um, information about two pieces of work that we have um, and that really work to support industry in um, the responsibility and transparency space. Um, SALT, as I mentioned, is funded through the USA, funded through USAID, excuse me, with a partnership with Walton Family Packard and Moore Foundations. And the Roadmap for Se Improved Seafood Ethics, or RISE, um, is a project targeted at industry funded through the Walmart Foundation to help them um, address uh, supply chain issues. So from our perspective, if a fishing vessel's activities are unknown and its catch is untraceable, then that means it's free to fish illegally and it's free to abuse its crew. Um, Fishwise was approached by USA to create a global alliance to improve transparency in the seafood supply chains through SALT. Um, we're serving as a hub for collaboration and information sharing on seafood traceability, um, and we believe that that's really important to also help make progress on the social issues. Um, as you can see from this slide, we brought together seafood industry, governments, and NGOs to find new ways to figure out how to track seafood throughout supply chains. And in particular, there are two objectives as part of SALT that focus on um, legality and human rights and seafood supply chains as related to industry. The first one is to increase incentives and capacities for the seafood industry to adopt electronic traceability and ensure legality in wild-caught fisheries products or in their supply chains. The second one is to identify ways in which the implementation of electronic catch documentation and traceability can support human and labor rights for all seafood workers, their food security, their livelihoods, and their well-being. 
The other initiative is the Roadmap for Improving Seafood Ethics, or RISE, which was developed with the support of the Walmart Foundation for industry to really give them guidance in building a responsible seafood chain with a step-by-step -step process. Um, both of these initiatives have open source websites where you can go to get, find partners and uh, um, gather information. And with RISE in particular, FishWise is really trying to go beyond the standard compliance um, approach that was mentioned already. Uh, we don't think it's sufficient to meet the legal floor. We've, we like to aim more towards what we call the ethical ceiling. Um, and ethical supply chain management focuses on the needs and participation of workers and commit, commitments to remediation of those grievances. It involves workers directly in due diligence um, in order to strengthen the supply chain practices. Um, and we've seen a few organizations who are successfully doing this and raising the bar, um, and we certainly hope to see more. Within RISE, you can really understand what some of the key components and core elements of social responsibility um, are. For instance, we define social responsibility through the Monterey framework, which includes components of the ILO's core conventions and the FAO fishery guidance. Um, and so there's a lot of different opportunities for you to navigate through the RISE website in order, if you're a company, in order to identify um, ways in which you can start to be more responsible with the way that you're sourcing your seafood. Oh. Sorry. Um, I'll just close with a few other comments on um, some initiatives that are happening globally with um, industry. Uh, Brad already referenced the Seafood Task Force, which certainly has um, a lot of heavy hitters from Costco to Walmart to Mars, Pet Care to Cargill, Cisco, Sodexo, what have you. Um, there are some other tools. The Responsible Sourcing Tool by Verite um, has a really good summary of international social conventions that can be used um, to uh, for companies to be able to sort of um, have examples of what a code of conduct might look like or what sustainability agreements might look like. The Common Vision for Sustainable Seafood, which includes about 80% of the North American um, grocer and institutional food service markets, has also said that they intend to address social issues including human rights um, and access to resources. The Tuna Declaration um, is more than 60 seafood companies who have a commitment of traceability by 2020 um, with the World Economic Forum. They also have a commitment to um, <clears throat> have at least minimum social standards and management practices. And then CBOS, which was re referenced on the last panel, um, is another initiative looking to partner American, European, and North American, and Asian companies um, in order to lead global transformation for sustainable seafood supply. Chain. So while there's certainly more that needs to be done, um, it is interesting to see that there are a plethora of things happening, and part of it is that first hurdle of educating and bringing industry up to speed in order to push them um, to where they need to be, which is what we've been working on. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and thank you to everybody. Really appreciate those just great remarks, and I think that was really great segue flowing from Amal down through Jenny. And, um, I guess I just want to pick up on your challenge, Amal, a little bit from the start. Um, but, but we've been doing some other things. Um, and I think that there's this real <clears throat> combined challenge of uh, incentivizing change. So um, the, I think there's a tension between bottom-up, top-down, how do you do it, what's the best approach, without, as you pointed out, uh, devolving some of the impacts onto those who are most vulnerable. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, you also have to be able to drive an integration of the various components mm -hmm. of the response. So 
it's not just a regulatory reform, it's not just a technological opportunity, it's not just a corporate accountability scheme, it's how do these things work together, and I think Brad got to some of those pieces. So I'll just throw it out to the panel, kind of a general question of, okay, how do we incentivize change? It, you know, I think that this is obviously not a black and white answer, but, but there are nuances. So let's get at some of those nuances about incentivizing change. Where is a top-down approach good? Where is a bottom-up good? And, and where and how does the integration challenge kind of rear its head in there? Mm. Um, and so I'll just kind of throw it out there and, and offer up some, some wide-ranging thoughts. Mm. I, well, as one of my other uh, favorite sayings I was taught was, if it was easy, someone would have done it already. Uh, so there isn't an easy answer, and that's, it was great that you're uh, pointing at the nuance of it. But I think carrots and sticks is what we really have to think about here. Uh, if you, it really matters what framework we're thinking from a U.S. federal policy perspective, or you know, I, I generally think about things uh, with a lot of the partner countries. Uh, so I hear a number of different different perspectives, uh, and I think that. The combination to me of both um, transparency, uh, but then also requiring validation uh, and demonstrating that transparently are key. And what that means in particular are, uh, do we have knowledge of the regulations in an individual country for both fisheries and for labor? Do we have uh, knowledge that the data has, uh, is being collected and has been reviewed? Uh, and then that businesses engaging in international trade have done their due diligence to make sure those processes have been followed and also to double check government. Uh, I think there is in the fishery space way too much of an assumption that uh, you know, government's just gonna fix everything uh, a lot of the time uh, in other countries. And so you see these issues of catch certificates and the idea that you know, government is going to have checked every single shipment on the way out. You know, we make, or the European Union makes, um, uh, makes countries sign these catch certificates. Uh, but you know, I, show me a government inspector who's willing to say they'll verify 100% of every shipment was fully legal. I mean, that's just not going to, that, that just doesn't happen, but that's the system that we're building. So I think layering in the transparency elements, the expectations of validations, and you're starting to see some businesses do that, uh, but then we really also have to bring in that cost equation. Uh, you know, we're just, I, I, we need to, the transparency must be used to show that there are gaps in accountability when we're sourcing from places that don't have the systems in place, because we can always find cheaper food. There's always somewhere else where they're willing to do it cheaper. And so we have to make sure that there's transparency so that we prevent a race to the bottom and can highlight when countries are pricing appropriately and doing the right thing, which is, I would say, something that Thailand has started to do in the last few years. I mean, just to jump in, I, you know, it's in my nature to be controversial, so here goes. Um, I do think, you know, I think one of the reactions that we see when there are social issues identified in a particular sector is a lot of companies engage with um, traceability and technological tools to sort of ensure that their due diligence proves that they're trying their best to address this harm and they're showing publicly what they're trying to do. I think in effect though, I wonder if that actually leads to any real change on the ground for the communities that are impacted, right? So even if the end state is that we are tracing all seafood and companies are showing their supply chain and the factories that they're working with, there's also a question about the 
the enforcement capacity of governments and the interest of those governments to actually enforce um, against uh, what could be, you know, takedowns of the corporations that are operating in their jurisdiction, right? So I think we have to like split up a bit the corporate accountability piece from the nature of the industry here and the ways that governments, including in Thailand, are um, related to the industry actors on the ground. Um, so I wonder to my panelists who are working with industry associations, whether they are tackling the consolidation or the nature of interest ties between governments and the seafood um, structure within that country? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I'd like to first sort of answer the broad question around what does it take to create change, and I think our philosophy is that it requires multiple voices at the table, and it requires a lot of um, collaboration in order to define a common agenda. Um, in the context of SALT, you know, Patma has attended our events to help us think through what are the elements that you would include in these traceability systems at a producer country level that might allow you to better protect workers in the context of using such a solution. And so from our perspective, hearing lots of voices to develop that common agenda means you have more ownership moving forward. It becomes something that can create more change. Um, from the perspective of working with um, um, industry and then governments. I mean, I think one of our mandates and something that we acknowledge is there are a lot of times that industry is collecting a lot more data that's not getting to governments, um, that that data could be incredibly useful through some of these systems to help governments um, be better able to manage their fisheries and manage the people who are working on them. Um, one of our objectives is to focus on building the capacity of those producer country governments in particular to allow them to be able better to, let's say for instance, if you're able to get um, industry to share some level of data, does um, do those smaller governments who don't have as much capacity have the ability to, to understand how they can use that data for their stock assessments or how they could use that data to better understand when transshipment is happening, which might be a high risk potential for um, human rights abuses. So I think we recognize that um, as a Fishwise organization, we understand and um, and um, want to encourage companies to make those commitments, but our support doesn't sort of end there. We think you have to engage governments um, and, and you have to engage a wide diversity of stakeholders in order to really affect change. Just, you know, taking advantage of everything that's already been said, I think part of it is having the governments, when we're talking about products that enter long global supply chains, having the governments ask the right questions. So right now the U.S. is asking questions that relate to conservation, but they're not asking questions that are related to labor rights and human rights, and that needs to change. I think the friend, and those two things can be integrated in a way that takes advantage of big data and big data opportunities. Um, we tend to look at the French model. We really like the idea of requiring due diligence plans, but also the idea of having um, Having information about crew lists and worker hours makes a lot of sense as well. On the enforcement side, a significant amount and more should be going out. Money is going out from the U.S. for capacity building. I think the fact that we're asking those questions and we're seeing across the board change happening just because we ask those questions, but we should be more deliberate as, as a country about really matching what we're requiring with, with supportive capacity building on the ground, whether that means putting in place the right systems for fisheries management, but also um, the right systems for labor management. We know the ocean is big and the world is big. We're never gonna have as many boats on the water policing this as we want. That's where the transparency piece comes in. That's where smart verification comes in. 
The other side of it is the U.S. can't be seen, and some of these large import nations can't be seen as just asking the question but never actually enforcing any of the requirements where there are violations. Mm -hmm. We need to start showing some serious muscle where there are violations for taking the kind of action that will produce change, but produce change that's equitable. Um, and then the final piece of it, for the organizations that have their eyes on the water, who have more of a campaign orientation, there needs to be effort to keep companies and governments really honest. Yeah. The Seafood Task Force didn't just magically appear. That was in response, and those companies didn't just magically come to the table. That was in response to some really aggressive right. and serious and meaningful campaigning. And that piece of it's gonna to continue to need to happen on, you know, to prevent the potential sliding to the right of, right of all these systems. So unfortunately, we're limited on time and we have our closing keynote here in the audience, Admiral Abel. So I, we're gonna uh, hold on audience questions. Hopefully folks can uh, grab panel members uh, around the coffee table uh, later. Um, but uh, I do wanna thank our panelists. I think that was a really great discussion and I really think a, a great uh, ending note, so thank you. So we're going to transition here to our closing keynote um, from Vice Admiral Dan Abel, who is the uh, Deputy Commandant for Operations from the U.S. Coast Guard. Uh, Admiral Abel has served in this capacity uh, since June 2018, and he's responsible for the development and operational st strategy, policy, guidance, and resources that address national priorities. This oversight of Coast Guard missions, programs, and services includes intelligence, international affairs, cyber, maritime transportation system, commercial regulations, inspections, search and rescue, I'm just gonna say everything else. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's quite a long list there. Um, previously, he served as the U.S. Southern Command's Director of Operations, leading U.S. military in the Caribbean, Central and South America, including recovery operations after Hurricanes Matthew, Irma, and Maria. He also served as the commander of the 17th Coast Guard District, headquartered in Juneau that confronted an evolving Arctic and was responsible for multi-missioned Coast Guard operations in Alaska, North Pacific Ocean, Arctic Ocean, and Bering Sea. So he knows from whence he speaks. So I'd really thank you and welcome, and appreciate your joining us here today. Thank you much. We've got some uh, ocean security zealots who are here willing to hear me talk through lunch. So uh, God bless you for sticking around. Uh, so um, uh, there should be some slides coming up, and do I need to click them? No? Okay, there we go. I'm a pilot, too many buttons. Uh, first of all, thanks. Thanks for the time you're taking to learn about this important issue. And, uh, and I'm gonna start with a sea story because that's what aviators do, is we tell sea stories. And also, I think it's illustrative of some of the challenges and the opportunities that are in this space of illegal and legal fishing. Uh, so in this particular case, uh, what you're looking at there is uh, Coast Guard Cutter Mellon. Uh, the hope is uh, no better friend if you're in trouble in the water and no worst enemy if you're doing something illegal. Uh, Cutter Mellon, uh, she dates back from the 70s, uh, so she's been around for a while. And in this particular case, uh, last summer she spent a little over 80 days working fisheries in the Northern Pacific. And it was part of the North Pacific Guard. North Pacific Guard is the operational arm 
of the North Pacific Coast Guard Forum. And this brings together a strange party pack of nations to confront a common problem. It brings together Canada, United States, Japan, South Korea, China, and Russia. For an example, Canadian P3s land in Japan because it's closer to the operating area. So when you get that team to work together, uh, you get results. And uh, Mellon ended up doing, in her 80 days she was out there, uh, a little less than 50 boardings. She did 45 boardings, and she found 69 violations. And I heard the comment about, you know, it's, uh, rules are only good if somebody's enforcing those. And this particular ship, uh, you probably can't see the, uh, the name real well, Young Da Fa 102. I'll just refer to her as a 102. Uh, she is, okay, uh, she's Chinese-owned, Panamanian-flagged, in the North Pacific, and she's a transshipper. So right there you go, this is gonna be a vexing issue. Okay, Chinese-owned, so ownership is established. Panamanian flag, though, so the country that needs to hold her accountable for uh, you know, sticking with international conventions and laws is Panama. Whose water she's in, it's international waters right here, and she's a transshipper. She doesn't even catch the fish. She just gets it from those catching it. So Mellon came on board, and uh, the fact that a Coast Guard boarding team could board is not a given. Of the 16 fishery management conventions or commissions out there, only three of them have boarding provisions. The bulk of them do not. So it's great that they're focused on conservation and management, but if you can't step on a ship and make sure that it's abiding by the conventions, how good are the conventions? So right there is a little bit of a struggle for us. So for the 102, uh, we found that she was an illegal transshipper. And, you know, what everybody likes, I mean, you see the videos of the, the Coastie that's beaten on the top of the uh, semi-submersible with a gun and put cuffs on the bad guys. This is a whole different world. You don't put cuffs on the bad guys immediately here. You have to work through the flag state. So we contacted Panama and said she is breaking the law. In this particular case, it was a great outcome. Uh, Panama recalled her and said, you need to go to your home port, found the other sister ship uh, in her fleet was doing the exact same thing and stripped the flag from both of those vessels. That is effective flag state responsibility for the governance of what these ships are doing. I wish I could tell you that all of those end up with the same end state. So let's talk about some different perspectives then eventually I'll get to taking questions. I'm hoping, okay, there we go. So from a fish perspective, and maybe you've already seen this slide deck, uh, things aren't looking so good, you know. The left end is when uh, Dan Abel was doing push-ups at the academy in the 1970s, and you can see it's gone from 10% overfished to 30% overfished. So in my career alone, threefold the amount of illegal fish, well, actually the amount of overfishing that's going on. You can see that that is uh, maximum uh, sustainability and then underfished. So the demand for protein is outstripping the current fishing that's going on there. So who are the folks that have big distance water fleets? And I'm not saying a distant water fleet is illegal. I'm just saying these are folks that go all around the world to find where the fish are. The size of the flag shows you in perspective to other countries what the, uh, the size difference is. And you're gonna see China. China is fourfold the size of the next two, three, four, and five if you added them together. 
by far the largest for the distant water fleet. And you never go wrong quoting folks. Uh, you know, here, a report that came out of, uh, of this particular center is the fact that fishing is becoming a different dynamic. Is it protein? Absolutely. Is it a nation state action? Absolutely. So fishing has become an instrument of national power. And looking at the largest distant water fleet, from 12 to 18, you can see the mass explosion of where the fleet is now fishing. Again, I am not saying it's illegal, but I'm just saying there's a huge expansion in the, in the, uh, the matter of only six years. And then this is where the illegal fishing is going, and we'll talk about where the slide came from. But the question is, you know, so why are these waters particularly attractive? And if you go back to the Willie Sutton days, who was robbing banks in the West, why do you rob banks? Because that's where the money is. Why do countries go to these waters? Because they've got a unique combination. Number one, large fish stocks that they're chasing. Number two, little or no capacity, capability, or authorities for the host nation to enforce what's going on in their near waters. And for some of these countries, particularly in Oceania, this is an existential threat. All they have is protein and fishing around their waters. And if that is poached, then that's all they have. So how do you solve a problem like this? Am I standing in, you know, the, the, the official agenda said we're gonna talk about the military and its role in illegal fishing. I stand in front of you as a member of the military. I also stand in front of you as a member of the law enforcement community. As a Coast Guard member, that's what I do. I also regulate fishing as being a Coast Guard officer. That's the intersection that can be productive in this world. Uh, a little help from the military because they have some capacity. Law enforcement and regulation is kind of the triangle that we live in there. That's our secret sauce. And the Coast Guard is helping from big to little. Big, you saw one of our largest cutters out there. Um, that's what we do. But it doesn't have to be that big. And any of the prior Navy folks here were going to snicker when I mention a strategic action group or a SAG, which was a Coast Guard buoy tender and a patrol boat that went island to island around Oceania and helped those nations with realizing what they could do to enforce their sovereignty. A little bit of law enforcement, a little bit of fisheries, a little bit of search and rescue. That's the type of thing we can do where the Navy cannot because certainly we can be there and have a presence there. The next one down that we talked about is uh, another way we do it is we did an uh, Africa um, Fisheries Management uh, Enforcement Program, or AMLET, and uh, that particular program, we ride uh, the African nation ships and help them learn how to board and how to hold people accountable within their own waters. And finally, the last one, OMSI, which is the Oceania Maritime Security Initiative. Uh, this is where we use Navy as an Uber, to be honest with you. They've got ships out there, but the Navy certainly cannot board a foreign vessel and hold them accountable for fisheries violations. Coast Guardsmen can, and that's what we do. So we Uber on the back of a Navy ship. They find us somebody. They raise a Coast Guard ensign. We go over. We do our thing. We hold them accountable. So again, looking to, to uh, leverage all the, the things we can within the national power. Which brings me to just a little bit of discussion. Uh, back in uh, 2020, when I went to the, uh, the War College, everybody was taught there's four elements of national power that you wield. The DIME uh, you know, uh, acronym, you know, diplomatic, information, a military, and economic, that's it. Now, folks coming out of the War College, it's DIME-FIL. Financial, 
intelligence. Who do you share intelligence with? Because that's an empower. And the last one is law. How do you wield law around the world to make sure that people are held accountable and being censured for violating norms, conventions, and law? And people talk about competing below the level of armed conflict with certain nations. That is how you do it, is you hold them accountable for this is how responsible nations act around the world. And so the term lawfare I've heard used as well, which is wielding that last element of national power. And, but certainly presence and authority can only get you so far. And stealing a, a page from our counter-narcotics uh, law book, you really need three things of a fire triangle to catch the bad guys in the big blue ocean. The first is you need to have some awareness of where they might be. You need to be in the right zip code if you're a cop. A lot of that can be done now with science. You talk to no one, you go, where's the salinity, the water temperature for that kind of fish? That's where you ought to start looking. Next, you need to get the right street address with some imagery, either it's uh, on wing or up in space. And the last thing is an on-scene presence that can take them down. And then the authority through a governing body to board those vessels. Uh, this particular is a global fish watch, which is, I mean, this is available online. They're using algorithms. They're watching the blips and they're saying, if a ship maneuvers this way in these waters, they're not transiting, they're probably fishing. And this allows them to take the, uh, you know, who, who's legal from illegal. And just a good example of using smart ways of getting after this. Last summer, the National Maritime Intel Integration Center, which is here in DC, did some algorithms and said, if you do this, this, and this, you're probably uh, illegally fishing. And uh, they ran it, and they found that over in Ghana, there was a Togo in Benin waters, that area, uh, something was going on. And as they pulled the thread and they looked at the financial records of that particular ship, they found that one ship was spoofing the MMSI, which is how the ships register, to actually cover for eight different vessels. We went through the financial records and says, that is the company that owns them. And then we, we armed the Ghana nation with, this is someone fishing illegally in your waters, here's their home address, and this is who you go after. Those are the type of things we should be doing to go after them in a smart way. The other way too, I don't know if port state, uh, port, um, um, state measures agreements came up or not, that is the way that uh, countries can work with each other to say, you don't bring your fish here unless you live by certain rules, and I won't take my fish to you unless I live by the same rules. Started in 2009, it's a great convention because if you can't get the fish to the beach, you're not gonna get it sold and you're not gonna make money in that bond of work. So that's another way to censure uh, bad behavior. So I'm gonna take a break here and turn it over to Wit for some questions, but just a couple of takeaways. Uh, number one is our fishing is outstripping the stock. Whether it's legal or illegal, we're catching too much of it. 20% of the fishing is illegal. That's about $20 billion a year of illegal fishing. Those that can least afford the loss of this fish are the ones that are losing the fish, the ones that uh, can't enforce the laws and their sovereignty. And the buildup of authorities, capability, capacities is what you need to control the threat. We stand ready to be the Coast Guard model, which is a little bit of law enforcement, a little bit of search and rescue, a little bit of regulation. And port state measures certainly is a way to get after where the fish goes and who allows it across their coast. So at this point, Whit, I guess over to you to, to take some questions. So thanks for, for sticking around for the, uh, the very last of the presentations.
Thanks, Admiral. Really appreciate those comments. Um, I'll just uh, pop off one or two quick ones here, and then okay. we'll turn to the audience. Um, so I really loved uh, that you brought up Phil there at the end. That was, I think, great. And, and um, the idea of lawfare is, is I think, really on point. Um, we've talked a lot here um, <clears throat> in, uh, in this institution uh, through my program about the idea of a dynamic world and how the world is changing rapidly, both ecologically and geopolitically right now, um, and that those changes are really driving uh, fracturing and, a, and a, an erosion of norms and institutions around the world. Um, but the fill that you raised is really one of the ways that we can push back on some of that, help to reinforce and build some resilience in there. So I guess in the context of the Coast Guard, how has the Coast Guard's mission changed, say, in the last 10 years in response to that pressure? And, and how do you see it moving forward in the next five to 10? Are we seeing more forward deployments? Are we seeing more capacity building, more direct engagement? Uh, well, I'd say that there's a couple ways that we've changed. Um, you know, certainly uh, post 9-11, uh, you saw the Coast Guard change from, you know, pretty much uh, everybody knows what the Coast Guard does. You know, we save lives and we clean up oil, that's it. You know, you slide us in a Department of Homeland Security. Certainly, Homeland Security and security takes, uh, uh, not, doesn't preempt search and rescue being important as other things, but it adds other missions that are in there. Um, I would say that the Coast Guard uh, is doing its best uh, to be more of a global presence. Um, you know, it's, it's surprising to most people where they see the United States Coast Guard. Uh, but if you think about that unique niche of us being law enforcers, military, and regulators, it makes sense that we're in the places we are. Um, you know, something as simple as a Coast Guard inspector coming to your port, verifying it's U.S. Coast Guard approved, and making sure your ships are not slowed down when you get to LALB is an element of political power, and it's an element of national power. that You can say, I'm Coast Guard approved. That's how we make sure that we push the threat outward, because the ship that shows up, we shouldn't wait until it's at the sea buoy to decide is it coming or not. It ought to be a decision that's made that it came from a port that we can count on and we know it's safe. And you know the ship is certainly safe and all that. Uh, we're certainly looking at a Coast Guard that is uh, more focused on the top and bottom of the world. It's kind of back to the future. You know, we used to have a lot of icebreakers that went to all, you know, to, to both of the poles. Uh, we're getting back into business. The Polar Security Cutter uh, was funded. Uh, you know, she's going to end up um, starting to make transits around 2025 timeframe. Uh, this most recent budget's got us some long lead time for the second hull, and we're looking at what a medium icebreaker uh, would look like as well. Um, because some of the same challenges that you're seeing in the fisheries world you know, you're seeing up at the, the top of the world as well. It is an Arabian Peninsula for energy, and it's a Panama Canal for transportation, all in the same waters that are ecologically sensitive, and it's hard to get there if something goes wrong. So the Coast Guard's also looking at where should we be there, and it's a great, it's a great place for us. I mean, we, we kind of got this Girl Scout, Boy Scout mentality of we're here to save you, and we're going to help you, and we're going to save the environment. That's a good place for us to be as a nation. So, long answer. No, that, that was perfect. Thank you. Um, shifting gears just a little bit, um, the recent passage of the uh, NDAA in December included, uh, referenced earlier, Maritime Safe Act, which is uh, a really important step, I think, from a statutory uh, perspective to begin to address uh, some of the gaps in our IEU capacity here in the States. But, of course, as this sausage gets made, there's a lot of as appropriates and caveats in, in that. Um, one thing that does uh, uh, is going to move forward is the creation of a new interagency committee uh, on addressing IEU fairly high level. 
Uh, and if I'm reading it right, I think the Coast Guard has the first chair of that committee moving forward. So I'm hoping I'm not putting you on the spot, but, but maybe just thinking creatively, um, as, as a leading this new interagency body, are there things that you would want to help to drive forward in the interagency and the, the whole of government approach to combating IU? Are there priorities that you wish you could, could help to bring in other, other, other sister agencies uh, to do things better at? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, like you said, it's got to be whole of government. I mean, we do not make the laws that are enforced. I mean, so we got to talk to NOAA and NIMFAS as far as, you know, domestic laws, Department of State talks about bilateral agreements. You know, I talked about the fact that three of the 16 management commissions don't allow, you know, they're the only ones that allow us to board. How do we advance that? Working with Department of State, working with DOD, because they have presence that they can help us get there. Um, how you wield all that together uh, to seek the national will on what you do with IUU is, is probably what's been missing because I think there's little pockets of goodness that have been out there in, in the U.S. government, but I don't think you've had one general contractor that's pulling together all the subcontractors all around the government, if that makes sense. Sure. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks. I want to make sure we do have some time for the audience. Do we have any questions for the Admiral? Hello. Thank you, Admiral. Uh, I'm Bill Hederman from the University of Pennsylvania and CSIS. Uh, you're, you told that story with a happy ending. I, I have two questions about what if it tur turned differently. One is when you announce to board and they say no, what happens then? And secondly, when Panama stripped the flags, does that kill the ships or do they just go buy some other flags and continue? Okay, uh, so the first question is uh, if they say no. Um, it's interesting, it, it depends why we want to get on board. Um, we have over 80 bilateral agreements with different nations. Some are specific to counter-narcotics. So if, a, if vessel X is, pick a, pick a country, Panamanian, uh, and they say no, uh, we check our bilateral agreement list and go, okay, we got something with Panama and fisheries included with that. So we go check with our flag state and flag state says, yeah, you can go ahead and board them. Or we automatically do it because you already have that. Um, that's how we get around, not around, that's how we get on board a fair number of ships in the counter-narcotic world is the fact that if you go to another nation and say, if we suspect one of your ships of carrying narcotics, do you mind if we board? Most countries go, yeah, no, I, I don't want our folks doing that. It would be the same in this case, you know, hey, we think one of your ships is illegally fishing. You know, do you mind if we board? Yeah, go right ahead. Like you said, though, but it's up to the flag, you know, in this particular case, the cuffs aren't going on. It's back to Panama. Um, and, and the response you get is totally different based on the, the nation that's there. Your question about flags of convenience and reflagging, absolutely. But it's interesting. Countries are starting to band together. Panama is one of them. Uh, Marshall Islands, I think, is another one. They're starting to band together and go, yeah, we're, we're not going to be the easy flag from now on. And if I say no, you ought to say no. So we're starting to see some international cooperation that, uh, yeah, the, the big guys aren't going to be known for easy flags as they used to be. So anyway, good question. Uh, Richard Coleman, CBP, retired. Uh, just thinking about uh, satellites and the Chinese, uh, pretty good with the satellites and pretty good with the fleets that are doing some of the bad stuff with the fishing. 
Um, do you ever feel like you're being spotted uh, by satellite? And there are people out there saying, hey, the, you know, we, we know where the Coast Guard is and you guys, uh, you know, hide, the, uh, hide whatever you're doing that uh, is going to get you in trouble. Well, there's two, two ways to look at it, Richard. I mean, number one, it's kind of like the cop sitting on the side of the road with his radar gun. If, if you're slowing down, he's doing his job. So number one, if the Chinese know the Coast Guard's sitting right where the fish are, well, I can't fish there because the Coast Guard's there. So already we're getting some of the desired behavior, which is they're not fishing where we don't want them to fish. Um, the other thing, I mean, OPSEC, I mean, we certainly can turn off AIS on our vessels and uh, do the best to, to be stealthy as we go around there. But I would say, you know, we also, you know, have the power of uh, naval intel and all that stuff. There's a lot of stuff in space that's looking at the big blue marble uh, down below and where things are in the ocean. And like I mentioned, the fact, you know, once you add salinity, water temperatures, and traditional fish stocks, and, you know, that's moving more and more north. Let's be honest. The fish are moving further north than they used to. Um, you, can, you can almost predict where the fleet's going to be in certain times of year, and that's where the fleet is. So, I mean, some of it is, is, is not hard to predict. But, you know, uh, do, do the Chinese know we're there? Probably. Uh, does it still get the effect we want? I, th I think they behave if the U.S. Coast Guard's there. And, and like I said, I mean, the fact that North Pacific Guard brings together those six nations that you go, I didn't think those folks co you know, cooperated on anything. You know, when you get the, the Chinese and the Russians and the Japanese and the South Koreans and the Canadians and the U.S. all teaming together, that's a pretty powerful tool. So. Yeah, David Helvari, author and uh, executive director of Blue Frontier. I'm wondering, like you have the lead it, let it lead a teams on the uh, Navy frigates going after doing counter narcotics. Um, when are we going to see the possibility of having fisheries enforcements put on, you know, extra hulls that the Navy can provide? You know, you're always seeing reports, you get good publicity when you bring back tons of cocaine out of the Pacific. Um, we don't get much about how many pirate fishing vessels you've busted. Well, first of all, uh, when I mentioned OMSI, that's exactly what it is. Those are fisheries-trained law enforcement officers that are going on board there. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, they're, they're the high end. They can certainly do counter-narcotics, but they go to a real quick refresher course in the region. They go to a fish school, throwing really good stuff just in time to enforce fisheries. So uh, the folks that are riding on board, you're right, in the Caribbean and the Eastern Pacific, they're focused on folks running drugs. OMSI, which is Oceania-focused, those are folks focused on, particularly on fisheries. Um, the struggle we have, you said, you know, okay, so when do we, you know, stand a parade dressed in front of all those bales of, you know, legally caught fish? The problem you have, just like the Panama, you know, the one I talked about, uh, you know, 105, it was Panama that took the action. Panama said come home, and Panama is the one that then took, you know. So it, it's a little bit of a delayed, you know, satisfaction. It's not as quick as, hey, you know, we just brought, you know, $20 million worth of cocaine back, you know, on this, this particular patrol. Um, so it, it's, it's a little bit delayed. It's, it's not as, as uh, readily apparent. Uh, but could the Coast Guard do a better job of saying in this particular year we sanctioned X amount of vessels and so-and-so were either chopped up or deflagged? Um, it's a good story. I don't know if it's good or bad that you already know that, but uh, no, th Admiral, thank you so much for uh, sharing. Uh, Bradley Soule from Ocean Mind. 
And I was, it was great to see you led with North Pacific Guard. I always cite that as one of the best examples of multinational collaboration. Most folks don't know that that started with several hundred high seas drift netters a year, and now we're down to one or two in the course of about 15 years. And you mentioned China's engagement, and I was wondering if you could elaborate in the last few years. Uh, there was a strong tradition of actually having Chinese ship riders on board U.S. Coast Guard cutters along the mines of Osme, Amlep, and others, uh, which was always sort of everyone was like, wait, we do this? We put uh, you know, Chinese officials on board U.S. military and law enforcement assets. And we had a long discussion on China this morning and avenues for cooperation. So I was wondering if you could speak to uh, the interest of the Chinese government over the last few years in that program, and if you see there are opportunities for that in other parts of the world to encourage positive collaboration on a military-to-military basis. Well, you know, you know the history of the Chinese shipwriters, uh, but the, the rest of the audience don't. I mean, that goes back, I think, 15 years or so when the Chinese Coast Guard was, was very small and they didn't have a lot of capacity. Uh, so we were almost like the U.S. Navy helps us out. We were helping the Chinese in force. The Chinese Coast Guard is huge now. I mean, it's bigger than we are. And so one of the questions is, what are we doing with the Chinese business? Um, we are no longer taking Chinese ship riders, okay? I mean, and, but we certainly expect them to hold folks accountable. Uh, we look forward to doing coincidental ops. We'll be happy to steam the same waters and pass them the information that we're seeing or where the other ships are. Uh, but we expect them to step forward, you know, as, as a modern state, enforce in, in sanctions and laws and governance on the, the ships that are under their flag or owned by the Chinese. Um, and that's the goal there. Part of the other reason why, candidly, that uh, the Chinese uh, shipwriters have kind of gone out the way, despite the fact they have the capacity to do this themselves, is as we transition to the more modern ships, there's certainly systems on the ship that perhaps we don't want the Chinese to be around. Let's put it that way. So. Great. And that's, a, I think, a really nice place to close because it kind of brings us full circle back to our conversation from earlier today. So <clears throat> just once again, I want to thank Admiral Abel for joining us here today, providing us those great remarks, and, and all of you for coming and participating in this discussion. I think it was a, a really great conversation today. I learned a ton. I hope you did too. And, and again, appreciate you coming and, and joining us here. Thanks. Have a great day. Thank you.